Hello and welcome to The Mariner with me, Chris Stanmore Major. And this week we're talking to one of my sailing friends, Rob Phillips. If you know that name, it's because he has recently popped up on your TV in the show Below Decks, which is a reality TV show that follows the the trials and tribulations of a super yacht crew who seem to be, as we'll learn, just generally stirred into disarray, disaction and dissatisfaction by the production team. So here's Rob. We've just started to chat. Um, you get very quickly that he's in Fiji. I'm in Nova Scotia. It's just past five o'clock in the evening for me, hence the beers and the gin and tonics. And it's nine o'clock in the morning in Fiji for Rob. And I will just warn you that in this episode, there is a little swearing. Wherever I am, cyclones seem to track directly towards. <laughs> All right. What's this? We want to sail together. I'm not sure that's such a good idea. Well, the, the last time we sailed together, it was almost directly into a hurricane. Yeah, well, that's the thing. That's, I, I thought perhaps it was just, you know, a trick of nature, but I'm realizing now that it might be you. <laughs> yeah. Everywhere I go, I always get these like, wow, the weather's way worse than usual. And it's like... Uh, <laughs> There's a pattern. Even when I was uh-huh. in Saudi Arabia, there was like, it's been raining a lot more than usual, which is never. And we have flooding. I'm just like... Oh, dude, oh. you could sell this skill set off. You could go like out into the Sahara and green the Sahara on your own. They, uh, you know, my grandfather was a professional water diviner. Oh, wow. Interesting. Hang on, hang on. Let's not talk about this. Are you recording? Because otherwise it's going to get... <laughs> we're going to get... Are you, so what, where are you up to? Are you still doing technology things? Yeah, everything is very tangential. Um, uh, <laughs> You're on the right podcast for tangents, I assure you. <laughs> <laughs> I think I've got a... I think it's working. But right. just as a backup, I'm recording the audio on my phone right in front of me. Okay, so I can... Perfect. I can Perfect. If everything else shits the bed, I can send that to you. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a pity we can't uh, we can't see each other. That's uh, that would be kind of funny. Anyway, we can I can do it. I saw you on TV last night actually. With uh, uh, not here, I wasn't watching it. I don't have cable, but um, oh, but, uh, but Melody does, and she was. Um, oh no! Oh no! <laughs> she she remembered how much she missed you when uh, when she saw you on TV. That's what she said to me. Oh, that's really sweet. She sent me a really sweet yeah. message this morning saying how she can't good, wait good. to get I, together and sail soon. Yeah, I took the liberty of giving her your number. I thought you probably wouldn't mind. And, uh, <laughs> no, yeah, not she at was, all. She was stoked to, uh, to be able to connect with you. Oh, that's fantastic. So you, you tell Whatever. me when you've, when you've got the technology as far along as you can. I, I tell you, I've got two beers and a gin and tonic sitting here. <laughs> well, it's five o'clock somewhere. But it's... Uh... It's, uh, it's five o'clock here, amigo. <laughs> It's exactly 9 a.m. right now. Wow. It's, uh, I guess once, once you're ready and we'll get going into it, that's, that's what we'll be talking about is what are you doing? <laughs> Where are you? Uh, okay, I'm trying to f- fix one more thing. No problem. We've got, uh, are you okay for like, is this costing you for like data or something or? No, no. Uh, data is so wildly cheap here. Oh. Wow. How the hell can it be wildly cheap in Fiji and yet in Nova Scotia you get like eight megabytes for 50 bucks a month? Like, and No, sorry, that's a bit silly. But eight gigabytes for 50 bucks a month. It's so, so expensive here to have a mobile phone and try and do data things. I think it's because the... 
the network here. Um, they don't have any like hard wires. They don't have much infrastructure. Uh, it's just towers. Right. And right. Uh, I mean, the island is fuck. You could if the what they did that eco challenge race. Like if those chumps can survive yeah. getting across the island, it's not that big. Yeah, I remember I applied for was that Fiji and Tonga? I uh, applied for the. Um, Camel Trophy back in the day, I think it was 2000, the last one they ever did, which was in, I think it was 2000, it was with Honda. Camel Trophy had always been with Land Rovers, going through the jungle. It was kind of the forerunner of the, of the Eco Challenge or Race for Your Life or whatever it was called. And um, I, I didn't so get cool. selected, I got down to like the last eight, but they went to Fiji and Tonga and the, oh, the, the footage, the, the place looked amazing. It's pretty, we're super lucky. I overlaid the route for um, the Eco Challenge over where I'm working right now. And yeah. the Eco Challenge just does a big circle through our property. And oh, you, wow. <laughs> you, you watch the show and it's everybody like crying and uh, tiger grills or bear grills like freaking out because like, oh, it's <laughs> raining and we got to get out of here, adapt, persevere, survive, fuck <laughs> off, mate. And it's just like, it's kind of our nine to five in there. It's like, well, the river's flooding. That's just flooding, how tough like, you are. Yeah, I mean, and the local villages in there kind of laugh at the whole thing because, you know, for them to get from school to church, they have to swim across the same river that canceled the TV show oh. for a while. It's like, <laughs> it's pretty hilarious. Yeah, welcome to reality. <laughs> yeah, and we tried, the first cyclone that hit us this season, we tried to escape um, and all the rivers had flooded because it's right in the headwaters, yeah. you know. Like yeah. a heavy downpour, and here it's not like there's no misting. It's just full on or nothing. So right. pre cyclone, it's just full on. And to yeah. escape, it was like okay, you could see your target where you wanted to hit on the other side of the river, and you'd walk like 300 meters up river, grab an yeah. empty jerry can, and just jump in right. and pray. And oh like, wow! It's kind of like plinko. Just kick across. Yeah, if you bounce off the right rocks in the right sequence, you'll make it to the other side. <laughs> and if you don't, you drag yourself back upstream and try again. And it's hectic. Oh, wow. There, there's no way out. It's like cyclones coming. There's a team of horses waiting to extract you on the other side of the river. And it's like, you just got to get there. There's no like, oh, man. We'll just wait it out. It's like, okay, yeah. boys. Like, <laughs> buckle up. Is this, this a place you've uh, been to previously? Or is this your first gig in there? Uh, it's my first gig in Fiji. Um, I've yeah. done the Amazon before, so I look at mm. Fiji's like Amazon light. It's like yeah. you're never more than 50k than a road. No one's trying to shoot you, and nothing's trying to eat you. <laughs> so that makes <laughs> it a lot easier than the Amazon. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You, you have like the human factor and the like. Every everything's trying to eat you in the Amazon. Even the trees have thorn and spikes. It's like. Trust nothing. Wow. The ground's trying to swallow you. The trees are trying to stab you. The bugs are trying to murder you. Like, it's interesting. I was watching some stuff that was talking about the fact that because of deforestation, they're now able to see the ground a lot better than they ever did. Plus, lidar satellites in space, they're able now to realize there's a lot of earthworks in the Amazon basin, and actually, we might be a lot closer to the original reports that came out of the Amazon when the Spanish first went down there, um, which said there was a lot of people living there. When they went back a hundred years later to kind of check it out, there was no one, but the thought now is that those early Spanish uh, explorers took with them smallpox and all sorts of things that the natives couldn't, couldn't deal with, but that the Amazon mm. itself has, uh, ha was basically a garden. It was uh, this, a disproportionately large amount of um, nut-bearing trees and, and food sources there, but it's basically a, a, a massive garden that's gone completely wild in the last 
300, 400 years or whatever it was. So it looks like there's going to be a lot of very interesting archaeology going in there uh, in the next 20 years when they now realize, holy mackerel, like there was a whole civilization living here and it's just been wiped out. That's fantastic. The, mm. One of the, the last, the project that I worked on in the Amazon, I was just brought in to do like a, a check for financial regulators. Like, okay, these guys are not throwing gold in the holes and all this yeah. kind of stuff. But a yeah. big part of that was going, I had to go out and see the sites. And uh, one of the sites we went to, it's just a helicopter dropped us off like way in the jungle and it was go see it and then try and get back out. Right, it, okay, that sounds like an adventure. And this, the cool thing about this project is what they were looking for is using like geochemical trace element analysis. They were trying to find the seventh and final Aztec city of gold, which the Spanish had found and exploited and taken all the resources from. Wow. And this this operator had previously found the sixth like Aztec lost city of gold, and now there's only one more that's in historical records. So it's this whole project where they're trying to like Good Lord. match all these crazy old like historical records with geology and local knowledge. And the last thing that happened when I was in there is they'd stumbled across a flat surface in the middle of the densest, darkest jungle you can imagine, just going straight mm. north south. <laughs> with big mm. flagstones on either side. So they think they found oh. one of the original Spanish roads and are trying to like fund uh, a LIDAR campaign to go and map it out. The original Spanish roads or the original Aztec, Inca, native roads? They was figured, this, did the Spanish run a road in there? They figure it was Spanish, but I, I have wow. no idea. I, I, just, I think it was just the way it was built and all these flagstones on the side were typically yeah. Spanish. And it was just like... Yeah straight north-south in the middle of a jungle. Wow. It's the strangest thing. Like, if you step on something dry in the jungle, you're either scared or, like, a bit curious. Yeah. yeah. So like, oh, this is flat. This is weird. There's a, a, fantastic, or... a fantastic book by Graham Hancock, who does all the stuff about the origins of the pyramids and, and, and talking about a previous civilization that may have existed on the planet um, more than 10,800 years ago. And his book, a uh, new, new book called Before America, is an amazing read that looks at all this stuff and looks at um, the fact that if you look at the historical record um, through Plato, we hear about the story of um, Atlantis. His uh, uncle was called Solon. He was a lawmaker and uh, basically he overheard a, a conversation between Solon and some other men when he was a boy, this is Plato overheard the story, um, talking about the fact that Solon had gone to Egypt and the Egyptian monks have told him all about this place called Atlantis. That's the only place that it really comes up ever in our records. But the Solon lived 2000 years BC and what he was told is that 7,800 years before um, this Atlantean, this place, this, this Atlantean continent, whatever it was, was destroyed. The new evidence is showing the fact that a massive uh, meteor or, or comet, more particularly, hit the Hiawatha Glacier in Greenland and caused an incredible change to the world's ecology and, and may well have wiped out uh, civilizations that were um, prevalent in, in the North American continent at that time. So the little bit that we got from Plato and from Solon, from our history, is now starting to line up with things that we know from geology, very new geology. This has only kind of worked out in the last uh, couple of years. And that identifies that the North American and South American continents may have had large populations and that when they were talking about Atlantis, they were actually just talking about whoever lived on the North American uh, continent or North and South American continent. So that's kind of of interest, but it may or may not be anything. Now as they start to dig deeper into the Amazon and find all these 
earthworks, they're finding uh, geometric shapes which are um, uh, indicative of, of quite high levels of, of mathematics and, and obviously stonework which indicates high levels of, of craftsmanship and, uh, and when they start to date these things and they date the, um, the, the, the domesticated corn and the domesticated peppers and things which are in the Amazon, they're realizing all these things go back like 10,000 years and it's, it's possible that we're looking at uh, undiscovered geology or undiscovered archaeology uh, uh, underneath the, the, the forest. No one's ever really looked in North America because it was the new world. So if you dug down to Clovis uh, level, you know, Clovis first uh, th uh, theory that um, the, the ten, about 10,000 years ago is when people entered North America, no archaeologists were digging beneath that. Now they've started to look and look further, they realize there's a very rich kind of uh, archaeological trace below it. So we might be in for some big changes in uh, how we see the development of, uh, of the human story. We only supposedly came out of the Stone Age 6,000 years ago. If this is correct, then that pushes that all back like 10,000 years easily. Oh, that's, that's so cool. I mean, people really forget from like the comfort of their couch or their desk or wherever they are, how narrow our viewpoint is. From, oh, yeah. from current, like looking into the past, like, oh yeah, well there was a guy 2,000 years ago, and we have a calendar now, and we know some stuff between then and now. And it's like, that's just scraping the surface. And from having yeah. been in like the Eastern Andes into the Amazon there, it's, you're, you're walking through villages and it's like, these are places where like kids will run up and touch you. Cause they're like, is this a ghost? Like what's, what's this yeah. white thing going on here? And they. No English, you know, a lot of these villages, they don't speak Spanish and they only speak Schwar. And it's these areas that are so isolated, even from one another, because these are all tribes that were competing for resources, you know, pretty viciously up until 40, 50 years ago, some still. So it doesn't matter how close to a river or a coast they are, they may have never crossed those boundaries. And then when you wow. look at these big civilizations that may have existed within them, like until you're intimately in that jungle for long periods of time, which nobody really is outside of the locals. You have no idea what's going on there. I watched a, a show the other day that um, it was a Mennonite uh, community living in, I think they're in Mexico. I, I feel like they're on the near Cancun, but obviously not in with the, uh, the pubs and resorts. They were out in the bush. Oh no, you know what? It wasn't, it was Belize. They were, they were nearby, but they're in Belize. And it had become a little bit too kind of um, modern for them. So they were looking to find somewhere else and they had found this land. Um, where was it? I feel like it was in Chile or something, but he, he took a flight. Obviously they don't really travel on modern forms of transport and stuff very often as Mennonites. Took the flight to, um, to South America, took another flight to get to this village, took a boat that took him up to this like town, took another boat that took him even further up the river. He was literally six days travel from, from Belize before he finally got to this piece of land that they'd bought. And lo and behold, where is it? It's in the jungle and there's a, there's a Mennonite uh, group already there. That's who he'd bought it from. That's how he knew about it. But they were looking to deliberately find that isolation to, uh, to continue with the, 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 the lifestyle that they'd chosen. But um, it was a long way away from anything we might call civilization. It was, uh, it was out there. Us. That's so neat. It's not hard to find isolation. Everybody thinks isolation is really hard yeah. to find. I think yeah. Canada, Canada is really lucky because all we have to do is walk north. Like, yeah. you, you want to be isolated, <laughs> yeah. set your compass to north and walk. Like, you'll find yeah. it within a few hours. You'll find open space, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's, I was looking at something the other day because my, my sort of 
understanding growing up is that uh, you know the world's population is set to boom and if I read the stuff that's in Wikipedia I think it's by uh, 2030 we're at like 11.2 billion from 7.8 billion now or something but if you get outside of Wikipedia and start looking at other reports uh, that's not necessarily exactly where it's at and that there is big uh, population development in some places like India and Africa, but a lot of other places are actually starting to worry about the contraction of their population. So we, I think my thought growing up for you know however long was that the, the, the earth was going to be overrun with humans and there wouldn't be anywhere to live. And But as you say, firstly, it's very big and there's a lot of space already available. Plus, maybe there's not actually going to be that many of us. It might well be that um, population uh, has already got to what it's going to get to. Can you imagine 11 billion of anything? Well, no. I, 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 That's insane. No. I, I, milli, a million is big. I think you, you only, if you say like one number every three seconds for, is it like 18 days or something? You can count to a million. But if you need to count to a billion, it's like spectacularly bigger number. <laughs> it's like way That's bigger. Insane. I don't think... <laughs> My little brain's able to comprehend how much. <laughs> yeah, steam's coming out the ears. I try and think of that, but it's. Uh, um, how I did you get on with your technology things? Are we now having a conversation? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, tech, oh yeah. <laughs> this is yeah. <clears throat> good. We've been up for ages. End. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I was just warming you up, man. I was just fluffing. Oh. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Oh. Well, we'll keep all of that in. So, you know, let's uh, welcome Robert. <laughs> ah. Would you would you like to introduce yourself now we've got this far? Uh, how do you do that? Hello. Well, hello. My name is Robert. Permíteme <laughs> presentarme. Uh, oh, wow. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a dude. Some days, uh -huh. I guess, you know, other days I wear different clothes. I... Uh, I don't know. I like boaty things and rocky things and adventure. I feel like this is a first date. Like, so tell me about yourself. Yeah. Well, you know what? In the, in the modern COVID world that we're in now, I think this is what constitutes a date for a lot of people, right? Well, considering it's Valentine's Day, this is exactly Oh, what yeah. <laughs> Happy Valentine's Day, man. Ah, perfect. Yeah. This is it. This is as, as close you're going to get to any action today is talking to me. That's a sad state to be in, by the way. Something's wrong yeah. with your life. There, there, I don't think there's another voice in the world that would want me, want lulling me through Valentine's Day. Oh, that's very kind. Thank that's you. Although I think you've got a few to choose from. I see that your Instagram page is, uh, is blowing up. Ooh, you're getting, that, that's a dangerous getting, place. That's a, you know, as somebody, popular, as somebody who tries to seek balance, you know, yes. I, I mean, I, I try, uh, the internet is a very dangerous place. You know, I've learned to not look at message requests anymore because it's either like, I hope you fucking die or um, I think you're really great. Oh, <laughs> is that really it? Wow. Oh, yeah. So this is, this is, we, should, we should point out to the people that are listening to this podcast that you, of course, are and now a star. And oh, you have been on, now, what's the name of the show and, and where do we catch it? Um, this is not what I want to be remembered by, but I did know it's okay. <laughs> we'll tell them that you're an also a normal person. Don't worry. But most recently, <laughs> yeah, I did participate, um, uh -huh. in, uh, a show called below deck, some of which is above deck, but I would say it's right. all very below board, um, right. <laughs> about, 
young and upcoming yachties trying to make a name in the industry and the, the drama and the strife and the trouble they face in their challenging everyday lives that are surrounded by air conditioning, good food, close to dock, onshore sailing, um, not a lot of fetch, and lots of towels to fold, dishes to wash, and uh, heads to scrub. Uh, it it started out there like you'd been uh, you'd been kind of conditioned with some strapline like elevator pitch like uh, clockwork orange style. It was so cut, and then I realised that <laughs> you're actually describing what's going on. So this is the super yacht industry. You're on a on a on a on a power vessel or on a sailing boat. You're on a sailing boat, right? Uh, no, this was a power boat. Um, oh, it was okay. Yeah, I think I don't know when it was made. It it, it was older. Um, I yeah. think it was like a early two thousands, like. 100 and something foot. It was in the super, but definitely not in the mega. Now, come on, come on. 100 and something, 100 and how many? Because 199 is big, but 101 is, you know, not so big. Uh, I, come uh, on. Somewhere between 120 and 160. I think 160. Oh, yeah. I, uh, like Tridec? Yeah, I couldn't be too bothered to pace it out or look it up. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, from the second Weren't I said... You hired as like... You were hired as the hot shot, though, weren't you? You were there to fix things. That's what I remember you indicating well i there was mixed messages because i got a phone call at like it was midnight and i was helping a friend close a bar in australia and we're closing a bar so we're like three sheets to the wind scrubbing the floors and your, i get a phone your life is so rock and roll man yeah <laughs> um and i get this phone call of like hey do you want to come do this below deck thing we can offer you some money so i immediately put it on speakerphone and me and my friend are sitting there giggling like <laughs> okay what's this <laughs> And they're like, yeah, we can fly you out tomorrow. We just like, we're having problems. Uh, they said something about like the first guy didn't clear background checks and the second guy was just blowing it. And they're like, we need somebody who knows what they're doing. And uh, you know, my response was like, I'm not the guy for TV. It's just going to be boring. Like just. Well, I don't know if that's strictly true because having met you, the obviously, hopefully when this goes out, there will be a YouTube version of it as well, so we can see. But uh, you're otherwise known in Spartan circles as Gorgeous Rob, so I don't know if that's... Uh, I, don't know, I think maybe you are built for TV, man. This could be your thing. I, uh, I did, I'm not... Uh, I don't know. Anyways, I said... I was like... <laughs> they, they gave me a number, and my head was like, all right, if I'm going to do this, I need to come home with 20,000. Because like, yeah. if I'm going to whore myself out to your editing and to your production, like... I need to at least be an expensive escort, not just like a corner. Wasn't it uh, Naomi Campbell who famously said she didn't get out of bed for less than 10,000? Is this, is this a version of that? Yeah, I don't whore myself out for less than 20,000? I whore myself out for twice what Naomi Campbell does. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Although she was only doing eight hours working. How long, how long were you doing it for? Nine days. Yeah. Yeah, oh, oh wow, that's not bad. Is it just nine days? I, we were on charter for nine days. There's a couple days either side of that, oh. and uh, there's like dark days in between. But, right. Uh, is that like dark in your soul, or is that they turn the lights off? What's that mean? No, production needs a rest from dealing. Oh, okay, with, yeah. I, so because you and I met up while you were doing this in Antigua, it was a very bizarre meeting. Oh, it was. It was. <laughs> so I I agreed to do it. They flew me out there, and I came on completely naive, thinking like. You know, oh, they've hired me to just like come and save the day and everyone's going to be friendly. And when I met you was right, like that was the moment when I discovered, oh my God, this is my nightmare. Uh, so just to kind of put some flesh on that. So we were both in Antigua. I was there for the 
Caribbean 600, I think. We, yeah, it was like February of 2020, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, okay. So I was there. We had the Volvo 65 and we were doing the um, Caribbean 600. And I got some text messages from you that's like, I'm here. Can we meet up? So yeah, sure, no problem at all. And anybody knows Antigua, there's the Antigua Yacht Club and then there's Nelson's Dockyard. That's where all the yachties kind of hang out. And I met you like in the car park half the way to ayc but you were you were mic'd up there was still on production there with some doberman pincer type uh production assistants who were very keen to keep you in train with what the others were doing oh god it was that was really the night where i was just like oh my god fuck this um because what i didn't realize through my like total naivety and just like proud ignorance of what reality tv was is that they're on you all the time. It's nuts. Yeah. And I was like, I just wanted to get away from it, to have like a real chat with you, away from all this like, yeah. you're just like, you're in this circle of lights and things that people avoid like the plague while they're like jabbing yeah. you with sticks to perform. And it was just like, just, just leave me alone. Like I just need human contact. And then yeah. I remember like trying to get you behind a van at one point. Like, That's right. Yeah. That was where the romance really began. You had your hand over the mic and then that lady came over and was like, get your hand off your mic. I'm like, whoa. Oh gosh. She yelled at me so much. Like really? o- over the course of that, like nine days of charter, I've never been like yelled at more like a little child in my life. And I have this complex. Good Lord. That's like, don't put baby in a corner. Like, nobody puts baby in a corner. So the, the, the more they, like, poked and prodded me, the more just negative response they got out of oh, me. Yeah. And I guess that yeah. kind of served them well in the long run because it gave them more, oh, like, yeah. instead of just, like, a, you know, calm, fix this, fix that sailor on the boat, they had a guy who was just like, fuck you, fuck you, fuck everybody. Like, get me out of here. Really? Oh, and it got... That, so that, that day I saw you, um, one of our friends who's on Sailing Poland, the Volvo 65, yeah. I was messaging him because they wouldn't give me a SIM card. Like, they were trying to cut me off from communication with the outside world. And I was like, not oh, wow. happening. So I was messaging him to bring me a SIM card. And his yeah. boat was like four down. And I'm just like staring at it from behind the bars of reality TV. Like, oh, real boats. Like, let me go be <laughs> friends with them. And, uh, no, you he, can't come in here. We don't pay 20000 for eight days' work. <laughs> <laughs> well, he, this mutual friend of ours, went and got me a SIM card graciously and oh, then came to the back of the that? boat. Who was that? Daniel. Daniel? Yeah. Oh, good for Daniel. Yeah. And he was like, I got you, man. I feel so bad for you. And he comes to the oh. back of uh, the below deck boat wearing like a full buff sunglasses hat. And he's got this SIM card he's handing off to me and I'm handing him cash. And we're both looking at all the cameras <laughs> and looking around going... This is not a drug deal. This is not, I, re- I repeat, this is not a drug deal. Okay. Yeah, but Daniel's good. Hey, he's, you can rely on Daniel. He's, uh, he's solid as a rock. Oh, on shore, on the water, if you need somebody to get you out of a sticky situation, like yeah. the bows. Yeah. When, Daniel, when you give Daniel instructions and then he says copy, you basically can go to bed at that point because he's, he's got it covered. Yeah, yeah, the mainsail's yeah. exploded, the, uh, the spinnaker's ripped. <laughs> And uh, mm. we're going in circles. Copy. <laughs> yeah, copy. <laughs> so um, w- were there any highlights? I'm going to try and like change this into being a really positive experience. <laughs> oh, for you. Right, we're going right, to do right. a little bit of therapy now. 
<laughs> yeah, just let it all out. It, it, it's just let it all out, man. Just lie on the couch. So we're going to be fine now. So w- whether it was a motorboat, which obviously you're more of a, a sailor, that's where your real skill set was. But was there any actual thing that needed fixing or do they just need more kind of like uh, uh, grist for the mill? Uh, the positive, the, like the most positive interactions I had were with a lot of the behind the scenes permanent crew. Like the first officer who was usually the captain and then the first engineer who used to play for the Montreal Canadiens. Oh, this guy, so, this guy okay, named awesome. Mario and the second engineer who was just like young and tons of fun uh, were so great to interact with because they knew that boat inside and out. They work on yeah. it full time. So yeah. it was actually really nice to experience kind of the machine of a bigger yacht through people who are really involved in it professionally, not just for a little yeah. show. So when you're like, yeah. hey, I have this problem, and you have two engineers who are just on it with like 60 years of experience troubleshooting like some hydraulic system, and it's actually incredible when you can just get on the radio and be like, I don't get this. And then two yeah. or three guys show up and they're like, we do, like this is fun, let's go. Which you don't always have that on a sailboat, um, especially a smaller no, boat. No. Usually no, there's nobody absolutely. to call, you're just like on YouTube trying to be like, oh God, how do I? How do I? <laughs> now that's, um, now we, should, we should introduce here the fact that of course you were a, a long way from being an experience going into this. You've, you've skippered your own boats and, and, and been your own master. What, what kind of things have you done in the past that, uh, that caused them to call you? Well, uh, probably 25 years of sailing experience. Like it, it started out yeah. where so many people start racing dinghies. Yeah. And then from there went to like a, sounds a little cliche, but the high performance team, um, <laughs> which is a Canadian sure, no, that's like great. dinghy racing team where we race dinghies and smash 29ers and 49ers. Yeah. And then after a big, long break, yeah, came back into it because sailing's just one of those passions where if you have it, it'll always pull you back. And then... Uh, Realized I could make a couple bucks at it and got into, yeah, professionally chartering skippers. Like, started with flotilla stuff, where it's a great place to kind of get your chops and uh, just park boats day after day after day around a group of really hectic, insane people. (laughs) Yeah, some of the pictures that you've sent me from some of the charters, I, I can't. I can't work out if I'm terribly, terribly uh, uh, jealous of the kind of people you get to hang out with and sell with or very glad that I don't have to. It seems like it's parties, it's fun, it's young people, they're on the water, they're enjoying being out there, but uh, very different from the sailing I seem to have got into. Well, it, it seems to be, with flotillas having some popularity these days, it's a good starting point because yeah. like, there's people with 50,000 miles who can barely dock a boat or fix an engine. So it's one of those things yeah. where you, you really get intimate with crashing boats and everything going <laughs> well, wrong. Because sure. you're picking up these charter boats and every week it's like, okay, what's wrong on this boat? What's wrong on this boat? Right. So you right. get into this like, you're always problem solving in a pretty hectic environment, which I think is really yeah. good. Because if you can learn in chaos, then kind of when I went on to Shh. running Shh. private charters in my own boats after that, it was much easier and I'd seen yeah. so many different things up to that point where I was like, oh right, like I have a solid foundation and starting point here. 
It's a funny thing in sailing, as you say, that, um, <clears throat> you know, you go out sailing, spent loads of time, like, working out how to trim the sails and do all these things, and then you dock once, bringing it back. You know, in the Navy and the stuff that I did, we'd call it bumps and grinds. And you'd spend hours and hours and hours going round and round and round just trying to dock the boat. But I cannot think of once, unless I was doing it, I've ever seen anybody just practicing docking a boat. Like, it's, you get people that are trying to dock a boat, and they do it multiple times, and they do it very badly. But just going out and trying to dock a boat it's one of the like the black arts of it you basically only get the opportunity to dock the boat when you're already the captain yeah oh 100 sometimes you'll you'll find a good captain who's just happy to to share that but a lot of times you have captains who are really nervous too and like rightfully so yeah. i'm sure a lot of times because really they're experiences yeah yeah well, oftentimes it's because their, their skill set's not completely fleshed out so they're very nervous about getting somebody else to do it but one of my goals throughout the week was, <clears throat> I'd have a new group every week. One of my goals throughout the week was to try and get somebody who'd never sailed a boat to dock it by the end of the week. Mm. And that didn't always work out well. And it was good that I was fully insured. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, fair enough. The, the, the thing that we had to do in, the, in the, the little bit of Navy that I did in the Naval Reserve in the UK was um, if you were the, the officer that was docking the boat, and I mean like a 60-foot boat, nothing, nothing big, it was just a patrol boat, but um, you'd have to give the helm orders and the engine orders, and then that really starts to make you concentrate on like, okay, what exactly is happening? Because a lot of times when you're docking a boat, your hands are in motion, you don't really consciously know what's going on once you've had to give orders for that suddenly it becomes a lot clearer what's what's actually happening but um yeah in, <laughs> insurance or a lot of crew with fenders <laughs> is really the only way <laughs> to do it yeah all the fenders to the stern uh and you, you've been up to st martin haven't you we've have we been out of st martin together i'm not sure yeah we yeah did we the, have uh, yeah we did yeah, the heineken, we did the heineken. heineken. Martin. that's right yeah so the, uh, oh in fact was that on Challenger? It was, wasn't it? And yeah, then do you remember was. that docking maneuver I had to do to get backwards into that berth? I had to like come in at five knots and swing, swing the bow in at the last second. Like it was, uh, it was pretty hectic getting in there. And you can only do that if you've got the confidence of, of well, the confidence of having messed up many times before. But uh, yeah, for those who, who maybe haven't had that length of experience, haven't had that uh, opportunity to get it wrong, it's super nerve wracking. Like how... You, a lot of times you have to carry a lot of speed to be able to do what you need to do. If you don't know how to control that, it's, it's curtains. Uh, yeah, I'm just going to take a second here and pump your tires because I've never seen somebody dock a boat in such small spots <laughs> with such like precision. The way I sit there, having docked boats hundreds of times, I sit there like trying to pull my sphincter out of my ass. I'm just so nervous watching you, watching you try and dock these a boats. There was a guy called, uh, uh, what was his name? Richard. Richard. He was a, a Polish guy. Kowalski or something. If I say it fast, it sounds Polish. It was, uh, it was definitely Polish, but I don't know exactly what his name was. But Richard has sailed a few times. And he was at the back and he was just looking at me going, how can you do this? How can you do this? It's like the yeah, only meters, way that this. Three meters. <laughs> how do you do this? But the only, but the only thing is that speed is your friend, right? If there's not water flowing over the rudder, like it's the end of the game. So you, you just got to pile on in there and then. But I have seen it go horribly wrong, um, and I was in charge, so <laughs> you caught me on a good day. Well, the, I've seen you do a couple really tough ones. The first was in, uh, we were in St. John's in Newfoundland before setting off okay. across the Atlantic. Right. And there was this spot that like, you couldn't park a dinghy in between two giant, big, rusty fishing boats with huge metal poles sticking out. Oh. And uh, <laughs> it was the, right. Yeah, it was the only spot 
uh, in the harbor. And you just slid it in there. And I, was, I think I was calling out meters for you on the bow, and it was down to like 20 centimeters, uh, <laughs> 10 centimeters. Well, it's because uh, of your accurate instructions. That's how I was able to do it. We're gingerly touching the other boat. But, uh, a lot of, a lot of things that I do are gingerly with this, with this mop. So, uh, it's <laughs> but, that, but that's, you know, that brings in a key point, good information, right? Being on the bow and actually getting someone who's giving you good info, unless you've driven a boat and, and parked a boat, it, it's impossible to know how little you can see of what's going on. Oh, and something that a lot of folks don't get, especially folks who only see this stuff on TV, is that what I, I mean, my perspective is sometimes the bigger the boat, the more expensive the boat, the more gadgets, and the easier it is to park. But when you're yeah, parking true. like a 60 to 80 foot race boat, that's basically just a flat sled, and the whole, yeah. like, half the boat's barely in the water. I mean, yeah. one little gust of wind, and that thing's just shooting sideways. There's no bow thrusters, yeah. no stern thrusters, one piddly little engine, and a prop yeah. that folds in on itself if you do things the wrong way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. God, I'm good. Holy mackerel. <laughs> now, I've, <laughs> we have, we have, I've, I've uh, been sort of uh, pointing towards the fact that something might be interesting happening with, uh, with Spartan soon, and uh, I'm happy to share it with you and, and therefore with the pod, uh, listeners, podcast listeners. Um, we're actually going to get a new boat, and it's definitely up your street because it's got cushions and, and like nice things inside. I think it's. Uh, I think your skill set and my skill set may be able to come together on this boat. It's a maxi you, called Longabada. It's eighty-two foot. You call me foot. soft, mate. You call me no, soft. No, I'm not calling you soft. I'm saying you have a different skill set than I <laughs> than I have. I don't know what I'm doing with cushions. <laughs> uh, no, it's it's uh, it's it's basically it's a very famous '90s uh, maxi. Um, it was oh. given a massive interior refit uh, by uh, Mike Slade, who's the guy that owned Lepper. So it's all got cabins and a galley and, and, and lovely kind of setup inside it. And um, we've done a deal which hopefully should bring it into what we're doing um, in the next like couple of months. So I know that we were talking a little bit uh, via text beforehand, but are you actually interested to, to come and do some more sailing? Are you able to leave Fiji? Because I can officially ask you if you like, if you'd like to come and uh, come and bring that boat back across the Atlantic. Oh, hell yeah. I've, you know, <laughs> you mentioned this to me in a text message and I've already been obsessively oh, like planning flights out of Fiji. I've lined up an apartment <laughs> oh, in Dubai. Good. So I'm going to go sit in Dubai and wait for the Portuguese borders to open. Like, yeah, yeah that's, that's all we're waiting for. We just have to get the Portuguese border open. Um, at the moment, the embassy is saying that the end of this month, the end of February is when it'll, uh, it'll open up. Um, we've got Ryan, who uh, you, you'll have heard on the podcast, and he's driven Maxis before, um, and Melody, who you've met, of course, as well. And then uh, one other that Ryan's going to bring on board, but it's got uh, autopilot, and uh, it's got the whole nine yards going on. So if you're, if you're up for it, I'd love for you to come on and be on oh, board and, and come sailing again. That would be absolutely amazing. These and uh, What's your rate? It's 20,000 every eight days, is that right? <laughs> 20,000 every nine days. <laughs> okay, uh, we're gonna be paying in pesos, is that, is that okay? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, that 20,000 is full service over those nine days. <laughs> really? Well, you can fluff all of the cushions and, and uh, use earbuds on all of the, uh, the cracks and joins in the, in the marquetry. Yeah, everyone gets a really uh, customized wake-up call for their shift. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, uh, we'll see. I think the, the thing is that I got some uh, great uh, advice from, do you remember when we did the Transatlantic with Christian Walters on board? And he yeah. uh, is one of the directors of Tour Radar, who's an adventure travel company that w we're part of, but we never get any, any bookings from them at all. We're like, the kind of, they, <laughs> they make no money from us. But Christian's one of the directors and he said, he came on board because he loves sailing, as you know. And um, we, we had a chat and I said, you know, why are we not getting any, uh, any bookings for your company? And he said, it's just too hard. It's just too hard. Like, this is not something that people want to sign up for. It's such a small group of people that would be up for this that, um, oh, yeah. you know, it's tricky for us to cover that. But uh, he said, if you can make it a little bit softer, then you know, this might be something that would be a bit more successful in, in the open market. So I've been looking around and uh, Longobarda is um, exactly as she was on deck. The, the rig has been shortened by about 15 feet, which just means it's not quite as um, okay. sensitive. You know, on Challenger, like it's, it's got those parallel spreaders. They're in, in line with the, the beam of the boat. And uh, yeah. if the backstays are not on, like the rig tends to disappear out the front of the boat. So oh, it's did been- they put pushing, pushing spreaders on it? No, what they've done is they've, um, it's still got the, the same inline spreaders, but they shortened yeah. the rig by 15 foot, which now means that the, what would have been the tip stay, like dragging down to the back of the boat and the thing that you use to bend the rig, that's just now permanently in place. So essentially it's, a, it's got a permanent backstay, which means the, oh, nice. the, the normal mainstays become something to just tension up the, the forestay a little bit more. So it, it means that jibing, it becomes very, very simple, not so much stress. And I, I've, you know, we already have mechanisms to deal with this on Challenger. We already have a kind of semi-permanent backstay, but um, it's very hard to remain relaxed during start sequences of big uh, Caribbean races when you've got a new crew, maybe only three days on the boat, and suddenly we go into a start sequence with Volvo 70s and Volvo 65s, and we're still yeah. trying to learn how to tack. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. $20 million with the boats around. It's like, okay, yes, the yellow rope, it goes clockwise, clockwise yeah. on the winch. But we, we always get that. We try and keep stress as low as possible. So, um, so that's something we're used to. But uh, it also has um, electro-hydraulic winches, which means that things are going to be a lot easier on deck. Uh, you know, we don't have to, like, sweat quite as hard, although it does have grinders as well. So it also has a bow thruster. So... Um, you know, life just got easy. It's a drop-down bow thruster, so... So uh, I could actually park uh, it. <laughs> I, I think you could park it anywhere. I think you've got easily enough skill, but it's, um, I think for me and for you, if that sudden yeah. last-minute cross breeze comes up and uh, it starts to all go wrong, you can suddenly save yourself. Oh, yeah. Well, docking is a spectator <laughs> sport, and I always say the bow thruster is the sound of failure. <laughs> As I mean, you know, once you're docked and you're sitting there having a beer on the back of your boat, just watching everybody else do it, and you're just listening oh, yeah. to it, that panic. Oh like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was um, at uh, where were we? we were in uh, Palma, Palma, uh, Palma, Mallorca, and um, the, there's a fuel dock there, and I was on board a 110 foot yacht called Cyrax and behind us was Alfa Romeo, the, the super maxi. And we'd all been there for a while so we kind of got to know each other. And uh, we were ahead of, and in permanent berths, ahead of the fuel dock. So we got to see everybody coming into the fuel dock. And one day uh, there was a super yacht, maybe 120, 130 foot, something like that. And it was having the hardest time coming alongside. But uh, we walked down and kind of started chatting to the Alfa Romeo guys who were a little bit closer. And then as you say, the docking became 
a spectator sport. It went from a tricky docking to is there actually a force field holding <laughs> this boat off the dock because oh, the bow God. would go in, the stern would go in. And then as you look at the bridge, you start to realize that someone stood next to the helm and there's somebody on the helm. And I think the dynamic was that either one of the guests or the owner maybe was trying to dock the boat. But it got to the point where we were sitting on the back of um, Alfa Romeo. We then decided to go and get some full scat paper and uh, put some numbers on it. And then we were holding up numbers for each attempt to get to the dock. <laughs> but they literally ended up like they got a bow line on and then the bow thruster went the wrong way and snapped the bow line, which was, you know, on a, it's a pretty big bow line on a 120 foot boat. And yeah, it's uh, you say spectator sport, but um, yeah, I think uh, <clears throat> a bow thruster might be a good idea. 82 foot is getting to the point where if it starts to get out of control, it's, it's going to become problematic quite quickly. Oh yeah. And <clears throat> yeah, it's, it's a carbon hull, isn't it? It's Kevlar. So it's, it's something oh. that I, I like. It's, it's uh, yeah, all, all Kevlar that, but I'm trying to think now. It's, it's all Kevlar and it's got an aluminum rig, which is a, com a combination that I like because Kevlar is so resistant as an outer yeah. sheath on the hull. Like the carbon boats, if that blows up on the dock or hits anything, it immediately damages the hull. You, just, you could literally punch a dent into the side of a carbon boat. With the Kevlar boats, it'll take a lot more. So I feel it's like a lot more resilient. And then the Maxis, they've got the rudder directly behind. It's a single um, yeah. rudder and it's directly behind the keel. So if you do hit anything at, seal, at sea, that, that, that steel keel takes the, the hammer and then the thing bounces off you. Whereas the carbon boats, if you, if you hit anything, it writes off a, a daggerboard, writes off the rudder. So it's a, it's a direction that I'm very happy to go. There was an option to get like a Volvo 70 or something like that, but I don't know. I just feel like that's even uh, more problems and even harder. Yeah, what <clears throat> I think uh, you you experience this all the time. I'm sure what people don't realize is <clears throat> you see Volvos on TV and you're just like, oh, it's a boat, but bigger or faster. Yeah. But then you, you get yeah. on it and it's like going from driving a golf cart to a Ferrari, where all of a sudden, if you sneeze and press the gas pedal, you're spinning out <laughs> and things are breaking. And it's, yeah. you don't really get that feeling until you're on it. And I think this is why people go from being good sailors to just clueless instantly when they step on them, because they're suddenly aware yeah. of all the massive pressures and loads on everything. And it, it's and it's I think it's very important that people that are running these boats um, that bring that, that learning out very, very quickly because um, you, you can end up in a pickle very quickly where, you know, the, the braking load on, a, say, a 12 mil piece of Dyneema is like eight tons. There's a reason we have rope that's that strong. Even if it's operating normally, there's four or five tons on it. That's twice the weight of a pickup truck. Like there's huge forces on things and people don't realize. So you can get it up to speed very, very easily. But if anything happens that's outside of what people can do, it's me or the other paid crew running forward to, to do it. So everyone's like, yeah, let's go, let's go, let's go. And then they'll get into that one situation where, you know, it's, it's a huge mess. The boat's all over the place. It's on its side. It's, it's accelerating and slowing down. And they start to realize like, holy Jesus, this is, this is not like my Cal 29 or my CNC 35 or whatever it is. It's, uh, it's something totally other. So it's important in the training to kind of, and I think that's one of the things that I'm very aware of with Spartan. There's a great desire on my behalf to get people out to sea. But when we first started Spartan, um, we started to give people the opportunity to go and do races on our Whitbread 60, which is a, a good fit, makes sense. But you're advertising, come on a big boat, go really fast, do a race. And then as soon as they get on board, I'm like, okay, here's the deal. We're going to be sailing this boat at like 50% <laughs> speed. And that creates definitely a problem but um you know just just one finger comes off of all those fingers we've had on board it's not good so um yeah that's all it takes I think longer, 
to fuck things up, kids. Sorry. One one finger in the wrong place, and it <clears throat> oh, yeah. over. <laughs> oh yeah, and I, you know the thing I learned when I worked around with Bam for a number of years, as you know, and um, the. Yeah. I used to have this experience where I take people out doing kayaking expeditions. They'd be in double kayaks. I was in my, my single kayak. We're all laden up with gear to go and do these, you know, multi-day expeditions. And the rocks in the, in the tropics, as you know, like I'm sure Fiji's the same, the barnacles on the rocks, they break and re-break and break and re-break and grow. And they're, they're, it's just like razors. If you're going to, you cannot slide over the rocks in any way, shape, or form. It'd be like going over a cheese grater. So I'd be very keen to point out to these guys, you've got to stay away from the rocks. And they would, they would never like give it like that hundred meters that I was really looking for on, on a rough day. And then I, I settled on a, a style of um, <laughs> teaching, which I still now use on the boats, which is that I'd say to them, look, here's the deal. If a wave catches you and carries you in towards those rock. Uh, and, and the boat hits and rolls over, what's going to happen? And they'd be like, oh, well, we'd be trapped against the rocks between the, the boat and the rocks. And like, then look at these barnacles. What would happen to your faces and hands? Oh, we'd get cut. And I'm like, yeah, and imagine that it's just rubbing backwards and forwards and no one can rescue you and <laughs> really paint this like exotic yeah. picture of how bad it would be. And I've ended up doing that on the boats as well, like describing a degloving experience. Like, and then there's your finger with your fingernail and it's rolling over the side deck. And now oh. people don't put their fingers anywhere. <laughs> there's a lot of people feeling quite pukey by the end of it, but it's, um, on normal boats, you know, there's there's normal levels and loads and things. When you get onto bigger boats, you've got to kind of just introduce this caution level because a lot of particularly men, particularly middle-aged alpha type men, they jump on and they start sticking themselves into situations without really realizing exactly what's happening. That's uh, the greatest worry I ever have. So a boat that's a little bit more toned down, still powerful, still big, still able to, you know, cut it, but um, but maybe a few more cushions and a few more kind of like things that make it a little bit more uh, uh, Hilton rather than uh, hardcore. And uh, I think we should have a happier time. Oh, that'd be such a great idea. How fast, mm. what are the polars on that boat? Like if you're like op optimally reaching the big kite up. I don't know. That's a great question. I, yeah. I, I guess I could go and find it out. Maybe I should have done already. But the, the thing that I know is that um, the boat as it sits right now, I think weighs... Uh, I feel like it weighs 40,000 kilos. It weighs 40 tons, which Ooh. when you consider that um, Challenger is even loaded up and wet with all the gear, it's, uh, it's 15 tons is like a massive difference. And yeah. in terms of the history of these boats, maxis like Whitbread maxis and things like that, they, they were, you know, 80, 89, 90 feet. And then in 1993, you had this point where the Whitbread races, it was then, they developed the Whitbread 60. And suddenly you had these boats which had to fit within this particular rule. They had a particular design. Um, they were 60 feet long. And the boat that I used to own, um, which was Yamaha, it came in on the 93 Whitbread race within six hours of Endeavour, I think it was, which was 89 foot long. And people Whoa. realized, oh, okay, we don't need to have a really long boat. And the thing is that at sea, the uh, median um, uh, wavelength uh, is, is about 60 foot. So if yeah. you're in a 60 foot boat, that's great. You're on one wave um, and then you come to the bottom, you get onto the next wave. If you're on a boat that's longer than that, you're in both waves at the same. You're kind of surfing down one while the nose is going into another. So there is like an optimal point. So we did Volvo 60s, then we did uh, uh, Volvo 70s. They were a little bit too long. They're very fast, but they're kind of fragile. And then we came back to Volvo 65s, of course, the Imokas are also 60 foot. That's that's where it's at. So around 93, there was suddenly this shift where it wasn't all about waterline length and power. It was about what's 
the, the, the best kind of middle point, what, what could do the best in all sort of polars, all sorts of angles. So an 82-foot boat like that is going to be um, probably quicker to windward. It's able to kind of crash through the waves a bit more than uh, a 60-footer. But um, on the reach, I wouldn't think it was as fast as as challenges. She would do like 21, 22 knots on a, on a reach in perfect conditions. I would think this would be more like in the 18s or 19s, something like that. So, but quick <laughs> enough, right? I'm just imagining cruising across the Atlantic on a maxi doing 18 knots on a reach with a cup of tea on the stove and sitting on the couch reading a oh. book. Like, oh, I can't uh, wait. Yeah, that's it's... <laughs> a dream. I don't know this what one be... sailing across an ocean and being comfortable is like. Like those two have never lined up for me. No. I've never crossed the Atlantic, although I've crossed it 29 times now, I've never crossed it with Jeez. a fridge. So I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> yeah, I'm still up for that. I'm hoping that my 30th go across is going to be um, bringing uh, Falcon over to Europe ready for going and doing the Westabout thing at the end of this year, which is on. But um, if, it's, if it's bringing one of these back, that will be equally good. It needs to be something that's kind of uh, 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 you know, a moment that's like, this is my 30th one and something good is happening. I'm either, happening, I'm either going over there to do this around the world Thing, or I'm bringing a fancy boat back with a fridge. That 30 times across the Atlantic. I'm 33 years old, and you've crossed the Atlantic almost as many times as I've been alive. That is absolutely Oh, but it's fantastic. a small number compared to others, I'm sure. There must be, I'm sure there's a lot of delivery skippers who could put us all to shame. It's, uh, I remember when I did the uh, Clipper race, one of the guys, yeah. Pete Sterling, that came to do that, and he was uh, 200,000 miles into his career, and he's continued <laughs> to sail, and that was 10 years ago. So I think what he's up to and what he's doing now. But um, yeah, you know, the, the thing is that those, those kind of miles, obviously I'm on fast boats, and that, that does mean that each day spent at sea more miles get accumulated. Obviously on super yachts, the kind of thing that, uh, that you were involved in there, they actually just accumulate days, which is maybe a little bit more representative. So I still got a, f a fair few of those, but um, yeah, mm -hmm. that's the secret. If you want to have big miles, just drive fast boats. Oh man. <laughs> so with the, um, the thing you did on TV, you know, is there any options to go back and, and do it again? What was the kind of outcome from that? Oh, no, no, uh, <laughs> not, not at all. Uh, so they systematically, produce and edit people to come back or not come back uh, based on how cooperative and how well-liked they are. Mm. And the, mm. the cooperative side of me was not present at all <laughs> during that. Oh. Like, you know, I've, I've put my time in on boats and when I have people telling me to like stage things and redo things and I'm kind of seeing through all the veils and not willing to keep them yeah. pulled down. Um, but it, like it, yeah, so no, cer certainly not. Not one person said, hey, do you want to come back? <laughs> um, <laughs> See, I but, maybe saw the wrong bit because the, the clip that Melody sent me, like literally her recording it from her TV, was uh, you just arrived and you were walking onto the aft deck to talk to somebody who was polishing something and they were asking you a few questions. And uh, I thought, well, this is a good start. You know, this is this looks great. <laughs> he could be... <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I guess no, no, no. he went downhill from there. My arc is like a rainbow. You know, I start off quiet, and then they they pull in some backstory to make people like me, and then uh, and then I get real sassy, and it just drops off. And oh, this, really? The start of my sassiness lines up right around when we met up, and then it. Uh, don't blame it on me. <laughs> it was you did this. No, no, it was totally. It was totally. I destroyed me. your TV career. But it, it all comes back to this, like, nobody puts baby in a corner thing. And there's a few situations where um, production staff were really telling me what to do. And I reacted mm. like a 
total child, you know, like good, good. At man. one, at one point, I just stole one of their golf carts and went to a bar. <laughs> good. At, at another point, they paid security to lock me in a hotel room and took me with the hotel key. So I just what? climbed out the second story the window. window. Yeah. Absolutely. Shimmy yeah, right down sure. like one of these like fixed drain pipes and went straight to the bar. Good. And yeah. then it, it became <laughs> You're always like, the bar. Why did you just lock you in a bar? You wouldn't go anywhere. Yeah. The, the true sailor on board. Um, but it, uh, <laughs> that the true sailor on like, board keeps trying to yeah. escape and go to the bar. That night ended up being a mix of like hilarity and trauma where I was like, oh my God, people are chasing me and trying to find me. But then another part of me yeah. was like, this is like Grand Theft Auto. Let's see how far and how many stars you can get. <laughs> where I'm like running from resort bar to resort bar, sneaking through banana plantations while all these security guards are running around with flashlights and golf carts. And you can hear them what? on the radios like, you know, which country is this in? This is in Antigua, like oh a, my free, God. a free country. And there's this little like security army out trying to find me as I'm just like, Good Lord. I'm FaceTiming a friend at this point. Just like, I can't believe this is happening. We're both laughing our asses off. And she's just, she's giving me solid advice. She's like, go back to the room. Don't fuck with production. They're going to give you a bad edit. And I'm like, I don't care. That's not <laughs> solid advice. You should have phoned me, mate. <laughs> get down here. We'll, we'll get you off, man. We'll get you off. We'll, well, actually, it was, a, it was a race that came back to Antigua, so we could only get you off for a few days. But, <laughs> but I, I ended up, I, I succeeded. I shook all the security. I went, proceeded to have a few too many beers, and then climbed back up into my room so nobody knew that Good I got skills. in. And I woke up to a slew of text messages and emails um, from the producers. They all thought I just disappeared. And they were like, if you're going to quit, you have to do it on camera. <laughs> Good Lord. So yeah. what, you know, if you're going to make a reality TV of, of working on board a boat that was actually, you know, true to life, what, how much different would it be? <laughs> if you could, oh, it's, the, the real life is totally different because you have a group of people, like wild individuals working together towards a common goal who like to have a lot of yes. fun. And these are usually yeah. seasoned professionals mixed in with a couple really motivated people who are new to the industry. And it's mm. a it's a beautiful mix, and I think that's what always pulls me back to sailing. Exactly, and, and I can't understand why they don't show that because that's a, a, an uplifting and positive story. The people learning. You, you earlier on, you were saying that the uh, the crew that knew the boat, you were learning from them that you're really, you know, kind of positively affected by them. Could, what is it that they have to show this like, like weird, like horrible, snipey version of what's going on? That's not that's not how anything rolls. No, it's. I mean, it does sometimes. Like, I'm sure there's days I've woken up in the middle of the North Atlantic and gone, Chris, fuck you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> well, that happens. It happens more than you might think. <laughs> but, it's, um, but it only ever lasts for a little while, and then people get through it, and I think there's some character yeah. development from it, you know? I, I just tend to put the soap in the sock and then beat you while you sleep. But it's, um, you know, but running around with a security force, like, trying to find you, like, what on earth? Oh, it's, it's, it's wild, and... The things that bring and keep people in sailing and yachting are these positive experiences of community yes. building and really paying attention to the little things that make or break somebody's days. And I think especially yeah. what ocean racing and being offshore has shown me is to recognize when people are having an off day, to recognize yes. when yes. somebody's in a rut, they're in the shit. There's so many different things going through your head. And just to be able to stand back on that day, make somebody a cup of tea and be there when they come around. Yeah. Absolutely. But the, the show doesn't promote that. And I think 
I, I mean, all I'd seen of reality TV was uh, like Les Stroud Survivor Man, which was yeah something totally different. And I was going yeah. into like, okay, we're going to show a cool story of people getting along and getting through some hardship and conflict. But it's it's that's not the medium there really. It's more like you know, kind of a humilitainment thing where you objectify univariate characters in a way that allow the viewer to kind of judge and form conclusions about them. And that's where the mm. user kind of gets off and has a good time. Mm. Or the mm. viewer, sorry. I had an experience where we had a reality TV show on board for when I did the Clipper race, and we were the yeah. Chinese boat, so they, they came on board as we went from Singapore to China, and that run yeah. is from uh, out of Singapore and up the South China Sea is, uh, is oh. very, very rough. It's a beat up into the northeast monsoon, um, yeah. and then you've got the Kuryoshio, the black current the, uh, that runs up from the Philippines up the side of Taiwan towards Japan. So you've got this 40 knots of wind against this five knots of current, so you can imagine what that does. And... Um, we had a cameraman on board and, and my crew was pretty coherent. Like the, you know, it was early in my, in my career. I don't think I was the best kind of uh, skipper. I had a lot left to learn, but um, mm -hmm. he was like almost deliberately trying to destabilize what was going on. Oh, and actually, you know what? It, it was exactly today. The story I'm going to tell was exactly on Valentine's day. It was 2010. So 11 years ago to the day we were going up from, uh, we, I guess we were just around Taiwan, something like that. It hadn't really got super rough, but it was coming on. And um, I'd made a few tactical decisions to skip us. Some of them had worked, some of them hadn't worked. I think at that moment, we were, we'd been pushed back from like, I don't know, like fourth to seventh or something like that. So it, it wasn't looking so good. So obviously people are like a bit downcast. They've been working hard. It hasn't, hasn't come good and, and that's on me. But this cameraman was like, he'd just come from doing a reality TV show in the UK and he was like literally trying to like incite mutiny amongst the crew. I remember I heard him <laughs> up on deck. I was at the chart table, which is like at the bottom of the companionway. And he's like, so, uh, you know, what do you think about Chris's decisions? And they're like, well, you know, it's not quite worked out this time. And uh, he's like, do you think he's a, a good captain? Do you think he's doing the best for you guys? You know, do you think there's anything that you could give to him as advice that would, so after 15 or 20 minutes of this, I have one of my cute crew members, Becky, come down and she yeah. wants to kind of give me her views on what's going on and, and kind of, you know, that's a fair comment. But then it started getting getting like super hectic that she was like really trying to drive this stuff home and then she started crying um and, and and it's like what exactly is going on here and we started to chat and it was just it was valentine's day and she was away from loved ones and she wasn't you know quite in the situation she wanted to be relationship wise and, she, and that was what was going on that was why she was like upset but he was just there to like just kind of gently keep pushing the chilies in, like, oh, it's gonna make this worse and worse and worse. And afterwards I took him one side and said, you do that again and we will, I will drop you off in Taiwan. I don't give a, a hell about this, uh, this documentary. This, you, you are off the boat. You can't have people deliberately trying to like stir up the waters. It's, it's always gonna go wrong. We are trapped on a very small fragment of fiberglass for us in the middle of the ocean and we've gotta be drawing ourselves closer together, not having someone stirring it all up. So. No wonder you get the reactions that you get uh, when mm -hmm. you've got production staff doing what they did to you. Well, yeah, I think that being their medium, that's just, that's what they go for and that makes them money and that's their business model. And I was the stupid yeah. one who's like, isn't, okay. it, isn't there like another business model? Like you could do positive things? Is it, are we, are we so like, like tunnel vision that we can only, we can only see bad things and enjoy it? Well, the, the good business model is just go sailing with friends, cross oceans, go on adventures. And yeah. it's, there's always hardship yeah. in that. And there's, 
there's always moments like we talked about where people are having a bad day, a bad moment, they're falling apart. Yeah, the cohesiveness that you form as a group and the way you grow yeah. as an individual through understanding that group on these challenging adventures is like nothing Absolutely. else in the world. Yeah, and uh, it's, I think a lot of people see it as a sport and almost comparable to like football or golf or whatever it is, but it, it involves this completely other experience, which if you've not done it, if you've not experienced it, you're not aware of. It, 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 can, it really drops the facade on people. You can't have any bullshit about it at all. You've got to be who you are, and then you've got to learn to interact with the people around you, whether that's difficult or easy. Oh, yeah. That's, dropping that veil, that facade, or taking off the mask is one of my favorite things about being on a boat, especially for longer yeah. periods of time, is yeah. geared so close to people. Like some boats, you know, people are shitting in a five-gallon pail. You're just oh yeah. Yeah, you're huddling around a warm cup of yeah. tea in the North Atlantic on a morning, but it's <laughs> that veil drops quick, and people just yeah. become the weird, eccentric, like amazing <laughs> characters that they are in in seconds, you know, or in days. And I love that because if you get like uh, I know people talk about you know you want to be like develop a well-rounded shape so you can fit in. That's great, but if you get loads of circles and put them together, they don't tessellate very well. There's lots of no. gaps between them. You yeah. need all sorts of weird shapes, and then you find a way to put them <laughs> together. It's completely heterogeneous, and it's really strong. That's what a team's based on. That's what I you know I throw myself into weird and wild geology adventures and sailing adventures, and it's all to be around weird people and broken people and strange people and the way they all hang on so why did you book with spartan then <laughs> no well, absolutely you've got you've got to go and see the world you've got to go and see the people that are in it right that's what it's really about yeah it's this you know it it's this kind of fix all if you're if if you're a racist if you're a bigot if you don't get out much if you have confidence problems if you have too much confidence you know all of these things just mm. Get out an adventure, like get on a boat, cross an ocean, trek into a jungle, like climb a mountain. It's, it'll do nothing but leave you a better person through having gone the hardship of that adventure. Yeah. And I, I got a sent a link recently by a friend who, uh, one, one of his friends had uh, just completed his doctorate and he was looking at um, uh, sail training as a developmental and beneficial uh, force for people who have, you know, dropped off the track a little bit and ended up closer towards a criminal life or they've been involved in drugs or just looking yeah. for an ex uh, a developmental experience. Like, the, the facts are there, the research is in. Like, it's a great way to, to, to effect very meaningful change in people. It's, inc it's incredible what it'll do for people. And the community mm. building and feeling like you're part of a community that is so mm. tightly knit through these adventures. Yeah. It, you definitely feel that like um, forming, storming, norming, performing thing, and then definitely when it comes to an end, you feel the the mourning section as people leave, and it, you know you know that that group of people is never going to be together again. Not that exact group of people, never no. But uh, mm -hmm. just like Melody reached out to me, we met sailing from what Newfoundland to I think we were headed for Ireland. <laughs> well, we were headed for Falmouth, but we took, there was a lot of, something was going on, I can't remember, so we went to Kinsale. Basically, I like Kinsale, so we went to Kinsale, but uh, yeah, that was, and that was, I think, a treat to go into Ireland. Oh, that, going to a town by accident after sailing all the way across the Atlantic was such a magical experience, to just end up yeah. somewhere that you don't expect to be, have it be this romantic little town full of pints of stout here and there and be show up as like a grizzly salty sailor with a story at the bar it was just like the coolest <laughs> thing in the world
Yeah. Right. I, there's definitely something I want to do more of with Spahn. I think we, you know, we did a lot of races, and obviously there's a hard point in the schedule. That's the start line, and then you have to go around this route, and and that's all cool. And we will keep continue to do a bit of that. But um, but as you say, the thing that's always really moved me about sailing is uh, is the groups that come together and the experience that uh, that can be so developmental. And if you're doing a race. I think it's a little bit harder to kind of get sometimes. Sometimes with some groups of people, it's okay. But um, on the whole, I find that people come racing with Spartan and then because of who I am, they, they end up having some other experience, which is actually more important than the, the position in the race. So I'm trying to definitely promote the idea that we go to more interesting places. And, and, and FYI, as we, we start to get into next year, um, we, oh, sorry, next year, this year, <laughs> we're yeah. already here, of course. Um, we're going to be going uh, over to the UK and then uh, yeah. we're going to go to Norway and then the Faroe Islands and then Iceland, Greenland and then Newfoundland. So I, I've never been to any of those places. So I'm, I'm pretty excited to go and see them to be able wow. to experience exactly what you're talking about this the, the, the thrill of the new things, right? It's, uh, it's all well and good, like driving around, going and doing all this stuff backs and forwards. But if, if you've done it a number of times and you've been to each place a number of times, you're missing out, right? But to go into the fjords of Norway and to go and see Iceland, which is like not finished, basically, whoever manufactured <laughs> this planet forgot to finish that bit off. Like, I'm excited. Oh, that'd be such a good road. And it's, you wouldn't you be get, interested in that, would you? That's not anything you'd no, be interested no, in. No, 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 no. It'd be terrible. <laughs> mm. But the, uh, when, the, when, do you, when do you have to be back in Fiji? June, right? Yeah. So the dry season here is really between June and kind of like no, November. So that's where we yeah. do all our jungle work. And I've been here for seven months trying to set up a crew seven. in a situation where I can pull out and then let them do all the development on the projects and get projects up to a starting stage where then, you know, the weird geologist can just come in and be like, oh yeah, over there, let's go do that. So, so, so take us through that a little bit, because now we've talked about boats, is obviously my, my audience, which are interested in sailing, will tolerate listening to something about <laughs> geology. What, what, <laughs> what, what is it that you do exactly? <laughs> I, I get asked this a lot and I never have a good way to describe it without sounding like I'm completely insane. And it's bumbling around the woods with millions of dollars of scientific exploration equipment, following my nose and looking for shiny things. Wow, dude, I want some of that. That sounds an awesome <laughs> job. <laughs> like, uh, can you find surface features that will allow you to identify... Uh, get, you're looking for gold, right? Yeah, here, well... But, here comes the big plug for the company I'm not going to name. Uh, no, we're here looking for uh, gold, zinc, copper, silver. Um, the area we're looking over is like 3% of Fiji's landmass. Um, oh, my goodness. We, there's kind of a, an exploration system that you use from start to finish. It's just good industry practices. And it's you know right. what I used when I lived in the Middle East, what I used in the Amazon, northern Canada. And it's you start with good old-fashioned prospecting on a new property where you walk around with a rock hammer and a backpack and you go look at a bunch of rocks, you make a lot of notes, you know, what kind of rock is it? Is it tilting? Is it filled with, you know, quartz veins? And you take samples and then you get those samples analyzed uh, and you start building a profile, a geochemical profile and then a geologic profile of like, okay, what's here? And then from there, you figure out what zones are hot. And hot being like, where do we have some interesting amounts of precious metals or base metals? And then you start chasing those up and investigating them more by doing mapping. And then the hard part is we don't have a crystal ball. And this is the thing you get from investors all the time. Like, what well, was it there? And it's like, I, I wish I knew. 
So then we try yeah. to use techniques to see below the surface. We're using geophysics, and there's a whole suite of geophysical surveys we can do through charging the Earth and listening to lightning wow. storms that are occurring on the other side of the planet to kind of get an idea of how <laughs> wow. chargeable or how resistive the materials inside the Earth are. Hmm. But from that, we don't know then what's causing them to charge. Like, is this a bunch of gold? Is this a bunch of copper? Is this right. some graphite? <laughs> like, yeah, um, yeah. So that's where you do as much work as you can to try and understand the subsurface profile and the surface profile and create all these like links between like, okay, we have three things agreeing that there's something here. And then the last thing you do is bring in a drill, which drills out, you know, just a pretty, like a burrito-sized hole in the ground. So you can actually get rock down to a certain depth, yeah. and then you can yeah. start creating a 3D map and look for more correlations. Now, but, I should uh, point... Uh, now, is this going to... Are you the guy who's going to ruin Fiji? Is I need to ask that question. Like, uh, <laughs> is Fiji going to become an open cast mine because of you? <laughs> no. Okay, no. good. What, what, what kind all. of mining um, would this be when it's, when it's operational? The, the gold project that I'm working on now is similar to other gold projects I've worked on. And there is such a thing as like an environmentally conscious explorer or miner. Right. Because, right. you know, there's, there's one type of mine that it's the first thing you're going to find when you type in mining destroying the world, which is going to be this big open pit mine, which is just sure. a crater-sized hole in like a high sulfidation system where there's tailings ponds, it's just garbage everywhere. It's, it's a yeah. mess. But then the things I try and push are vein hosted gold deposits and these are things that come out of like narrow veins or sheets of veins over like a pretty small area of the rock we're talking like meters wide right. so the mining happens underground and then your surface footprint is pretty small like the, the surface hole in the ground is the size of a rock truck is there any benefit to the people of, of fiji is there any kind of like way that they're going to benefit from this yeah uh it, as long as everyone's on board with it then people yeah. are going to benefit. So there's the, the first thing we have to do before we go anywhere is getting the social license. And it's kind of this unwritten thing, which a lot right. of companies still ignore. And unless you go in and put lots of time and effort into communicating with the communities that you're working around to kind of gauge if they want to be involved, how they be involved, like that's the thing you have to do before anything is going to be a success or a failure. Absolutely, because, yeah. You know, if you don't put your time in with the villages and the communities saying, hey, do you guys here's what we're doing, here's the end goal, here's what's going to happen in the short, medium, and long term, do you want to be a part of this? And if they say no, then you don't have a choice, you're done. But if they say yes, then you can start moving forward with like, okay, here's yeah. the jobs we can create, here's the skill development programs we can put in place, here's the community development programs we put in place. And that's, that's what I like about working in a smaller country like Fiji for a smaller company because I can be directly involved in these things. Like I can go to the mm. schools... And I can go to the village elders and get everyone to sit at the same table and say, okay, what are we going to do next for the community and the laborers and the workers for skill and community development projects? And it's, mm. it's nice That's that what, way. Because at the end of the day, we have to get stuff out of the ground if we want to have the lives which clearly we, we want to have because everyone's yeah. buying these products. And if we want to move towards renewable energy and, uh, and batteries and, and all these things that uh, these, these minerals have to come out of the ground. So there must be some way of doing it in a socially responsible way, right? Oh, there is. And I think it's, <laughs> it's kind of like an old saying, but like the, whoever wants to shut down mining, may they be the one to cast the first phone? 
Is that the new saying? <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, yeah. I see. You spent a lot of time in the jungle thinking that one up. <laughs> <laughs> it just came to me now. But there is a way to pull these things out, to extract these minerals in a way that doesn't just benefit the, the companies that are going to use them to build fancy things or build fancy chains, but in a way that can actually develop and uplift the, the willing participants in the communities that are around these mines and these development projects. So yeah. should they be taxed? Hell yes. Should it be lockstep tax? Hell yes. Should they be very government regulated and overseen by environmental boards? For sure. Should everyone be involved in every step of the way to making this a project that can better its environment? Yes, for sure. And that's why I deal with yeah. these mines that have, you know, their footprint, you could drive your Volvo through. Like, that's it. Yeah. It's a little oh, really? hole in the yeah. ground, okay. you know, and especially if you're working on like a low sulfidation, a vein hosted gold system, you pull that gold out and you can get like 90 plus percent extraction of gold just through gravity milling it. Like you throw the rocks in a big thing and you crush them up and the gold falls yeah. out and then you stuff them back in the ground after and cover up the hole when you're done. Wow, that's, that's kind of, I don't know nothing about this, but it kind of sounds okay, right? It's, it's not, as long as it doesn't end up in some uh, kind of crazy, as you say, tailings, ponds and all that kind of stuff with acidic erosion and all that, it's, it, it, that sounds like the best way to do it. There's no other better way right now, right? No, there isn't. And we're, like, there's a new generation of miners coming in and I think we're faced with dealing with a lot of the problems the people before us left. And that was, you know, for hundreds and hundreds yes. of years, things were totally unregulated. And it was, you yeah. know, coming in on the coattails of colonialism of like, take everything, fuck everybody, let's get out of here. Yeah, yeah. We're, I was watching something the other day, it was about the gold rush in the Yukon and yeah. the, um, the fact that, the, you know, the, the people that went up there uh, to try and get the, get the, the, the work, get the, um, get the gold, um, the, 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 the things that they were enduring to get there was unbelievable up over these mountain passes or extraordinarily oh. long treks to get there. And it was, uh, then when they got there, obviously they were not following anything along the lines of socially responsible, uh, procedures. They were just digging giant holes in the ground or whatever they could make happen, leave all the waste, all the industrial the things that they brought with them, just drop it everywhere. So mining's got a kind of a bad, uh, a bad rap to date, but I'm guessing there must be more oversight now so that these things can, it has to move forward. We have to do it. There has to be people like you that are making it happen in such a way that um, we can see it, and, uh, it going into the future and, and, and feel okay about that. There is, and unfortunately there is in some places. There's still parts of the world oh. where companies get away with operating in, like, just being shitheads and ruining everything, you know, having lots of chemical processes that aren't managed responsibly, not doing, you know, their due diligence with working with local communities. And that still happens everywhere. So it's still, it's an ongoing push. And it's a push through the whole... Um, the whole chain from the miners to I think what ends with the consumers and the manufacturers now as well. Like everyone has a responsibility to go, okay, I'm buying this shiny thing. Where does this come from? Who produces it? What's their supply chain? Like is my cobalt oh, yeah. coming from a mine in Africa where kids yes. are dying every day yes. and being forced to work? Or is it coming from a nice, you know, friendly mine in northern Ontario? Like Cobalt, Ontario. <laughs> The, the thing is that every single person that's listening to this and all of the technology that's allowing you and I to connect today is yeah. all based on uh, elements which have come out of the ground. Every single person that's listening to this is, is some 
part of the problem or some part of the solution. We all need to, yeah. I think there are a couple of phones on the market. I was listening to the Joe Rogan podcast with uh, Moxie, Moxie Marlin Spike, who is the guy that started uh, Signal, the, the texting uh, uh, system, uh, that's yeah. a lot more private than anything else. And he was um, pointing out that there are some, um, what do they put it now? They like, uh, socially well, socially responsible phones, uh, where you know, the, the things that it's come from are have been collected in a way which doesn't affect the environment too much. But clearly, those phones are not iPhones. Like it's not you know some fancy Android whatever. Like everybody that's listening to this on any kind of modern smartphone is or is, is where that stuff come from is probably not a very happy story. We have to start to move this towards a better place where we can. Uh, not have a moral dilemma about going getting a new phone. But somewhere in your battery is a little piece of child labor, guaranteed, based on where like most of the world's cobalt and lithium comes from. Uh, I was yeah. listening, the BBC the other day was talking yeah. about a new German initiative where they're going to force corporations to be 100% responsible for their supply chain and ethically source things, which yeah. I, th I think yeah. that's something that has to happen across the board. Germany's yeah. so far ahead with stuff like that. Even like getting rid of cars when it gets to the end of its lifetime, it's an expensive yeah. process now there. They have to strip everything into its uh, separate components and each one of those has to have a, an understood and clear onward life because once you start to realize like a lot of the electronic goods that we're throwing away get stuck on containers and ships and sent to parts of Africa where you know there's literally kids in the street with braziers and they're hanging wires over the fire to get the, the copper back out the wires like this is not nope. cool we have to move away from this yeah we're yeah we're getting there and that, that it's nice to see things like this happening in German politics to set examples of like okay they're yes. ahead this is what they're doing this is working let's like yeah. let's invest in the future here and hopefully as the as the developing world gets to you know to, towards technologies which might benefit them and technologies that they choose they will be able to leapfrog all of the dirty and dangerous uh, uh, procedures that we've we've evolved through in the last 200 years in in the developed world they can maybe go straight from wherever they're at to solar or wherever they're at to hydro or wherever they're at to wind power and not have to do the whole like burning coal you know burning uh, uh, resources which uh, then deforested uh, uh, areas of the planet. They need to get to a way that they can um, take advantage of the technology we've developed and the whole world can like, get to this, the same level without destroying the place. Yeah, and this is, I stay far away from the actual mining process. It's just, it's too mm. big. It, there's too many rules. <laughs> it's, sure. Uh, sure. It's, it's too boring. It, and I don't mean so rules. you've got like a You've got an odd life where you're, you're kind of doing two very different things. How did that come about for you? You've got sailing on one side in a professional capacity and then, you know, explore. How, what's your proper job, job description, like exploratory geologist or how yeah, can you my, be a professional in two different things? My, my job title is pretty funny right now. It's the senior exploration manager. So I Dude, that sounds cool. Yeah, it's pretty rad. But there, it is there, pretty rad. They're I can't quite connect different. that to the story of the person shinning down the, 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 the drain pipe to get to the bar. <laughs> there it goes, the senior exploration manager. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, yeah. I made the mistake of sharing the, uh, my participation in that show with my CEO because I was like, okay, I need to make things. There needs to be clarity here. Like, we're a publicly traded company. I got to show you um, sure. what, what, what I've done just in case it comes up. <laughs> And uh, how now, long did it take him to stop laughing? 
Her favorite thing to do now is to go on the internet over a morning coffee and read me mean tweets about, about me. <laughs> it's, it's oh, so well, dark. I will uh, get on that bandwagon. <laughs> it's, it's so dark, but it's so lovely. And, uh, Fair enough. She, she, apparently, she used to be a stand-up comic. Uh, so now I know where her dark sense of humor comes from. Yes, and really absolutely. Open up a conversation about our interesting pasts. But when, when you, so she was a stand-up comic that got into exploratory geology? Yeah, well, she's the CEO of this junior mining company, and she's headed up a few others. And Very there's cool. A, you're kind of asking how I go back and forth between sailing and geology, and I think you know, she ties into it a lot with her like, outlook on the industry that we work yeah. in. It's a lot of really like independent, startup, crazy people who just like to go out there and do things. And, sure. you know, the sailing world's full of that and the geology world's full of that. And both of those worlds are full of adventure, you know, whether it's... Oh, as you, as you describe what you do, I can feel like a little six-year-old part of me that's like, yeah, that sounds great. I want to <laughs> yeah. go out in the jungle and find gold. Like, that well, definitely appeals to me. <laughs> well, you're a full-on, like, masochist. And I think, as are most <laughs> long-distance sailors, where it's... You I know. don't. It's not going to be on my tombstone. That here lies a full-on masochist. I, I, <laughs> you love. I haven't, you, I haven't seen myself in the light before, but it's interesting that you should see me in that way. Well, you do. You love a little abuse, don't you? Like you must. <laughs> I think the thing for me is that if if I got down to it, just to, uh, <laughs> I think I think what it is is that I see myself as that if I can go through whatever it is I put myself through then I hope that there's somebody somewhere who's actually involved in something important who sees that and goes, well, if he can do that, then I can do this. And what they are doing is important. Like, I, I'm yeah. hoping that there's, like, somebody who's working on the cure for cancer who then goes, he sailed west around the world. Well, then maybe I should do another night at the office. And that's where it comes from. It's certainly what I'm doing. Yeah. It doesn't add up to a hill of beans. Um, what they are doing, hopefully, listening to these stories is, is the thing that is important. So I don't mind. I always feel that people are vicariously coming with me when I, when I do these things. And then um, I, perhaps in some way I'm able to demonstrate that they are tougher than they realize that they are more tenacious and smarter and better problem solvers than they realize because if if dumbo here can like get himself across the atlantic then then they must be able to do what they're doing right so that's the only that's the only joy in it for me this is it's something that you don't realize until you're in a position or on an adventure or doing something where you you're in a situation where it's push or you're screwed that you can oh, push yeah. yourself so much further than you think you can. And oh, yeah. a lot of people don't realize that. And through yeah. the, the beautiful way you put it, vicariously living with you and being able to take people on those adventures, you can really show them sure. like you are capable of so much. You can get through anything. You yeah. can adapt to anything. Yeah. yeah. I remember doing a, a kayaking expedition with a group of um, uh, students, university students in Hong Kong, um, and uh, we set out from whatever was the Outer Bound School and we we're going out to this island that was far to the west. It was maybe like 20 kilometers paddle, something like that. And uh, I've been told by a number of the instructors that the university students were kind of, they didn't have much energy, they didn't have much vision, they didn't have much kind of tenacity and that you should uh, make the experiences easier because then they, otherwise they couldn't do it. And I was like, I don't think that's entirely true. Like Hong Kong is a very 
a specific, unique kind of environment. Obviously, a lot of people living all on top of each other, and when they get out to the uh, the outdoors, it can be a little bit overwhelming. But I'm, not, I'm sure they're not like you know, 19, 20, 21 years old and have no sense of adventure. So I set off with these guys and we got within about a kilometer of our destination and they were like, they were just, they couldn't handle it any longer. They were seasick and they were paddling and oh my God, like is going to die before we get there. And it's only like a tiny little way to get there. So I thought, okay, let's do like a little bit of uh, experimentation here. So I said to them, now you look at see that cloud over there. Well, I've just got a VHF message from the base and it says that that's going to become a big storm. And <laughs> actually it's gonna be very dangerous for us to be on the island so guys i'm really sorry about this but we're gonna to have to turn around and go back and they looked at me like it was the end of the world and i said okay i want you to take a couple minutes i realize this is big news but um work out what it is that you need we're gonna have about 10 or 15 minutes here before we have to turn around what do you need do you want to eat do you want to drink do you what do you need and then how you know, tell me what you want before you're able to paddle 19 kilometers back. Because they had previously been at the point where they thought they couldn't go another kilometer. So they, they had a bit of a chinwag and came back and said, we're going to need to have at least five minutes to eat biscuits. And everybody wants a drink of water. And Jody wants to get into the water and have a pee. I'm like, okay, no problem at all. So they start to get about that. And I said, okay, here's the deal. Oh, what I just told you is all complete crap. It's, that's not what's happening. We're just going to go to the beach. So they looked at me a bit like, what is going on here? And then we got to the beach. We had a conference and a kind of discussion about what I just put them through. And it's like, where were they at in their heads where they thought they couldn't even go one kilometer? And then where were they at in their heads where they realized, okay, there's 19 more kilometers that we got to do. And we think we can do that if we just have some biscuits and go on. And yeah. a lot of them that evening came to me and said, what is this thing? What is this like extra reserve tank, this extra fuel tank that you're talking about that we've got available how do we tap into that and it's uh that's the thing of tenacity and you can only ever discover that it's available if you push the limits and if you find out you can go on what your idea is of normal which might be going well, not for you obviously but for everybody else is going to the supermarket <laughs> and going to school and going to work and but we are so much more capable and, and so much more uh, uh, uh so many more things are possible if we just push ourselves Oh, every, everyone's got so much more than they, they think they have. Mm. But, you know, when yeah. I have this moment here talking to one of my, you know, sailing heroes with a few people listening in, we, you've had all these incredible oh, adventures. Me? <laughs> yeah, you. All these incredible well, adventures and experiences, like, with and without other people. You know, for kind of figuring out what's in the tank and looking at how people are sort of stuck right now in one situation or another with, with lockdowns mm. happening all over the world. Oh, like, yeah, absolutely right. What do you think is your biggest thing that you've taken away from all that? Like your biggest kind of tool to being able to go, okay, let's let's push through this and we'll be okay. That other people could use. I think that a lot of modern media and a lot of the things that uh, that we see. Let me see this. I tried to describe this to my daughter, and I said that pretty much everything that she knows, what goes on behind other people's doors. 90% of it comes from media. They have this kind of idea of how people live their lives and how people deal with you know, terrible situations and they deal with uh, uh, difficult uh, interpersonal situations. And a lot of that information is coming to us through the media. And the media is designed to keep our attention. It's designed to keep us hooked into that, that show or that whatever it is for, for 30 minutes or two hours or whatever it is. That is not a fair idea of how things go down. Um, 
the certainly for men, certainly for men in the 20th century, I think there has been uh, a lot of heroes which are absolutely stalwart, absolutely stoic, and um, they never give in, they never cry, they never fall apart. They're, that's not part of the process. They just find their way through. And if you're facing hard times, and you have those kind of role models, um, the media and those kind of um, uh, heroes teach us that uh, you know, if, you, if you break down a little bit, then, um, then you have already failed. The truth that I found is that um, crying is incredibly useful. Uh, uh, falling apart mentally can be absolutely the best thing to happen. Um, not having the answer and needing to think about it for a couple minutes is a, is a genuinely positive way to deal with a problem. And that what happens is that in that process of falling apart, you learn where all the pieces go. And then you're able to take those pieces and put them back together and then rebuild. And not necessarily rebuild any stronger, but rebuild afresh and then face the, the problem once again. And it might be a continuous process of breaking down. Like I, I've said in other things I've done, the second time I went around the world... Um, when I did the Velux thing, there was only eight weeks before me, between me getting back and setting off again. And there was a lot of things going on in my personal life. And halfway down the Atlantic, someone wrote to me and said, hey, you wouldn't guess it, but you're in exactly the same place you were this time last year at this hour. And I, oh, wow. that was the, it. I was like, well, I didn't want to be here last year and I definitely don't want to be here this year. And I fell apart and I, I spent probably the guts of, two to three days in the bilge, literally with a fleece blanket over my head, just falling apart. Now, that does not fit in with modern ideas or, or historical ideas of, uh, 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 no, you know what? I'm not gonna say modern ideas. I think we're changing. I think it doesn't fit in with 20th century ideas of like what a hero is and what a tenacity is, um, but it's necessary. I think you've gotta fall apart and you've gotta feel weak and you've gotta come back. And a lot of men particularly don't feel they have the option to do that and that to show any kind of uh, weakness is somehow they have failed. And I, I think the thing I've learned is that the great resilience I have is that some days I don't want to be there some days I don't want to be doing it sometimes I need to cry my eyes about cry my eyes out about a memory cry my eyes about what's going on and that through that cathartic process I'm then able to to keep going so I think I think being the reed is more important than being the oak I think there's a lot of strong winds blowing right now as you say correctly with the um with lockdown with covid with what's exactly going on here and uh, and falling apart is uh, is a is a, a pressure release process which I found to be very 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 useful. That that's it. <laughs> that's God, what I God. think. Fall <laughs> apart. Fall apart whenever you feel that you need to. Hundred percent. Yep. So much growth doesn't come through comfort. I don't think so. No. You know, no, it, no. And a lot of people are kind of stuck right now, sitting on the couch, reaching into a bag of Doritos, watching that reality TV show with their jaw open. Where. It's a comfort and you can fall into that, but I think it's important to not always fall into that and to feel the discomfort and to investigate like, yeah. why do you feel like shit? Why does everything suck right now? Yeah. And through that, you can discover and force yourself into change. And for a lot of people, change is foreign. For other people, change is a regular thing. But you, you got to feel terrible to feel great. And I think that's, that's fine. Like, you know, it's, I think also the fact that you know, you're, you're growing up and you get to maybe like definitely the things that happened to you at 17, 18, 19, 20 are very, very formative. I think you're yeah. developing who you are as a person. Um, I think by the time you're 25, a lot of people feel like, uh, okay, I, I kind of know who I am now. I'm not sure that's true. I think that we're forever 
um, in, in, in change and in flux and, um, and that you need to be aware of that. And each day is an opportunity for new opportunity. Uh, each day is, a, is an opportunity for new revelations about, about who you are and what you can be. Sometimes you see the more negative sides of yourself. Sometimes you see the more positive sides of yourself. But each day is still, you know, it's, it's not that by 25 you've kind of reached the lake of your personality. The lake's now full of who you are. It's a river and it's constantly in motion. Um, I did one of the podcasts and it was about um, the progress of time. Uh, and it was about the fact that sometimes things seem to be rushing along. Sometimes things seem to be going very slowly. And that if you look at the evidence, the times when things seem to be um, rushing along and you're having an amazing time and then when you look back there's huge amounts of memory of and details available it's because they were transformative processes and your brain's like taken notice of what's going on and it's um it, it's really noticed every detail and then when you look back that period seems very rich and if your life is in a perpetual state of development and change you kind of have more life. It doesn't get all blended into one kind of homogenous lump. It, it, it's, it's filled with all sorts of exciting things where you pushed yourself and, and developed yourself. That's what I loved about what you said about you deliberately try and go and find like mental cases to work with so you get that yeah. developmental experience. <laughs> well, it's, I, I, looked up, I listened to that podcast. For anyone listening to this, what was it called? These are the days of our lives. Yeah. Yeah. It was incredibly inspiring. If you're sitting at home and you're looking for a reason to go and scare yourself, uh, it's full of reasons to do that. And it's yeah. kind of like, you know, time is like this gravity well. It's like dropping a ball in a taut sheet. And those moments where you scare yourself, those formative experiences yeah. where you're learning new things, feeling new things, and seeing new things, are those moments of growth and those moments where you have more memories because your, your yeah. body's programmed to have memories there. But then we can use that to our benefit to keep scaring ourselves to keep learning new things to keep kind of going out there and pushing our comfort zones in a, like a safe and kind of pragmatic way but mm. to to do it nonetheless and it kind of comes mm. back full circle to why i sail and why i you know piss off into deserts and war zones and jungles it's because like <laughs> You know, if I've ever been sitting somewhere and I get a call of like, do you want to go to this terrible place and look for this very rare mineral? It's not going to be fun. I'm usually like, yes, I've never done that before. I'm going to learn something. I'm going to see something. I'm going to feel something. Let's go. And I think everybody has an opportunity to do that on some level in every single day yes. of their life. And yeah. And it's obviously for some people, it's maybe because of responsibility, you know, Children, mortgages, all that kind of stuff bears heavy on people, but there's often little microcosms where you can do it. Just do something a little bit different, even if it's going home by a different route in the car, even if it's uh, deciding, you know what, I'm going to change the spark plugs on this car myself, or something that just pushes you slightly outside of the comfort. We're, we're definitely drilled into thinking that everything is a labor-saving device and everything helps you avoid inconvenience, and yet in those moments of, of having to work something out and, and trying to be inconvenienced and find your way out of it, it is where all the development is. Oh, 100%. I always use the, the surfing analogy where it's, you know, for a big wave surfer to get a big thrill, they have to go fly to the other side of the world and jump on a 60-foot monster. But for somebody who's just starting, they can get that same thrill from a little three-foot wave at the beach. And it's, yeah. it's the same for, for anything. Like, you don't have to get on a boat and sail around the world to, no. for some people. You can get on a small boat and go out onto the lake or just to the shore. Yeah, and that, that could be that form of experience for someone. I yeah. mean, hopefully it'll lead them to more and more, but 
just get started. Like, just go. Yeah. Or just take the thing for me is that um, <clears throat> I think because I've done you know a lot of different sorts of sailing that um, people think I'm like not interested in a twenty foot sailor, a uh, trailer sailor, or something like that. But quite the opposite because you can have more thrills by pulling a little boat to a lake and getting there with your kids or, or, or going out on your own, or you can have just as many thrills with that as you can with anything else. And, you know, I've been, I've been where it's very rough and I've been where the wind blows strong and it's, it's, it's thrilling in a different way perhaps, but it's not feeling yeah. thrilling in a, in a, in a kind of better way. It's just, uh, just being out there and pushing yourself is what's important. And pushing yourself, what, what's pushing you? to get in a boat alone and sail the wrong way around the world. And just to set this up for anyone who doesn't know what this is, I think there's, correct me if I'm wrong, but there's less people who have done this than have set foot on the moon. Is that right? Yeah, no? that's, that's right. <laughs> Who's interviewing who? <laughs> yeah, you're absolutely right. Like, what's um, the, big, uh, the big push there? When I was... Um, when I, was t when I was 12 years old, I went to a school in the north of the UK called the Lake School. And it wasn't particularly a very good fit for me because it was, it was a bit rough and ready. And, um, and, and without structure, I, I tend to get distracted and go off on tangents. Anybody that listens to this knows that. Um, so I needed perhaps somewhere to go somewhere else, and I did in time. But there's one thing that happened at the Lake School which was super important to me. I had a wonderful teacher there called Mrs. Mills, I think she was called. And we had this thing we had to do which is called the self-reliant journey. And we were first year in high school. Now I get a bit confused with North American. What, what grade are you in when you're like 11 years old? What, what's that called? Child? <laughs> I have not know. <laughs> but what's the grade at school? It's like, is it grade eight or you're, you're at when you just go to like big school? I think whatever that is in the UK, that's for us going to secondary school. So I was about 11 yeah. years old. And uh, what would happen is that the, ele the, the, the grade eights, if indeed that's what it is, um, they would plan an expedition. And then one of the senior pupils who'd be around 17, 18 years old, they would join them. So you suddenly got basically what to me <laughs> sounds like a band of children setting off on an expedition. But when you're 10 or 11 years old, this seems like, oh my God, this is like the best thing ever. So we invented yeah. this uh, route, which went like walk down to the, the lake. And, you know, we're going for like, I think we went for two nights or something and um, we did this adventure. And the, the point of the story is that we did whatever we were gonna do, but it, it didn't kind of work out in the way that I expected. We didn't get as far as we could. And my mother was there waiting for me when, um, when we came back off there. So we're literally hiking back into the school grounds. My mother was in the car and she always said to me afterwards, she said, look on your face. You look like just the end of the world. And it was just, the, you know, you look so angry. And it's because we hadn't been able to go as far as we thought and, um, and do as much as I thought had dreamed that we could do and that this opportunity had been missed and that self-reliant journey uh, at uh, at 12 i just don't think i ever kind of came back off it i'm just you know keep what's available how far can we go what's what's possible is something that kind of uh, stir, stirs me and then the other thing being um i wonder if perhaps i might do something that might inspire somebody else to actually accomplish something important that really that really helps so having based a career i guess on that for 20 years I guess the going west around the world thing is like it's time to put your money where your mouth is. Like if you really are putting it out there that you know how to sail and you know about seamanship and all this kind of stuff, then um, time 
<laughs> time to go and do it, Lado. So going east around the world is definitely a challenge. Um, there, there's no hierarchy in this, but there's a there's a, a different kind of challenge. I've always liked beating to windward. There's a lot of tactics involved there. It's not about out and out speed. Um, it's, it's a different kind of thing. It's definitely about looking after the boat and, um, and conserving the boat for the entire way. And then I guess it's just a good dash of adventure and, and, and kind of uh, excitement to be trying to do the thing that the other people can't. The thing, you know, do what things the rules consider unwise. That's, I guess, where I'm, where I'm at. And I, I trust the boat I've got. I think that I've got the right boat to do it in, in the, the Pride of Nova Scotia here. She's very tough for it, so I've got the right tool. So if I'm unable to do it, in the end, it comes down to the fact that I'm not as good as I think I am. So I think if I am able to do it, I'll be completely unbearable when I get back. Um, but, uh, but, it, <laughs> but it'll be worth it because... Um, yeah, maybe finally I can come back off the self-reliant <laughs> self <-reliant> journey. <laughs> I, I do wonder, all these people going to Mars, um, I did wonder, I wonder if there's, is there a film script in this or something where, you know, who's the best person to go to Mars? I've got to say, it must be people that sail solo around the world. Like, if Elon's listening, you know, I'm up for it. I, I'll do it. I, not quite sure I'm at with personal relationships and things, but it's the same story, right? Whenever anybody sets off on their own, the tip of the spear... It's um, it's inspiring and it's a, it's a magic moment, but it's normally then other people will follow. I don't think other people are going to follow me solo nonstop around the World West, but they will set off perhaps on their own adventures based on the fact, well, if he could do it and he's an idiot, then I can definitely do it. So <laughs> that's what I'm hoping for. <laughs> I love how you really downplay the dashing upwind. <laughs> but uh, upwind through the Southern Ocean, is, uh, it'd be a little wet. I, I will say absolutely. Every I was watching something the other day. What was it? Um, you know what it was? It was Master and Commander, which uh, everything I know about sailing I learned from Master and Commander <laughs> and Captain Ron. So, <laughs> so they they have <laughs> all my parking maneuvers. If you think back, Rob, it's pretty much Captain Ron, right? But yeah. um, they they beat West around the horn, and it's. Uh, it's not to be trifled with. It's not. I think the thing with the with with the Horn and perhaps the Southern Ocean is that um, it's a beast unto itself. And until you've been there and experienced it, you go, "Well, I kind of know what rough weather's like." It's like, no, no, this is no. completely something else. And uh, you've got to have a lot of respect for it if you can survive in those scenarios and, and, and kind of make your way through. That's a victory. There's there's no winning. It doesn't care about you it doesn't if you go to the bottom that's on you like who, who the, the southern ocean doesn't care so you have this completely amoral uh opponent who is not coming at you because it's personal it's just uh, it's you against the thing and whether that's going out into the jungle and trying to find the minerals whether that's going out into you know just going out to your workplace and being excited and to 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 to, to conquer the the challenges of your workplace it's all the same thing so uh, yeah i just um <clears throat> I'm very scared to go and do it. Don't think I'm not. <laughs> like that big right turn into the Southern Ocean at Cape Horn is going to be petrifying. But um, I will do it in the hope that uh, I will continue to develop myself. And then, um, as, as we've said, uh, vicariously, others may uh, be inspired to go and do their own thing. That's gonna what's, be quite... uh, what's the challenge that you would uh, try and throw yourself up against? What, uh, what uh, in sailing or in, or in geology, what uh, things do you still see as, uh, as, as challenges ahead of you? Um, I've been obsessing over the mini 650 series. Mm. 
Okay. All right. Yeah, you actually mentioned that in a text. Yeah. You know they're very small, right? (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, any boat, if you're in it long enough, gets real small. Uh, True, true. This one, you just hit that wall right away. (laughs) (laughs) So just for those, it's, it's, what, 21 foot long. This is a a racing class uh, that's very strong. The 6.5s, the mini transats, that's the birth ground for a lot of people that do solo racing. Hey, that's, it's technical. It's very fast. The design is on the edge, but it, it's a it's a small boat at 21 feet. Yeah, they're, they're small boats designed to go fast. I mean, they're, they're designed to go downwind real fast. So anywhere you get caught going upwind, you kind of just get hammered. But it's this wonderful class where you can use these two words in the same sentence with affordable and ocean racing. And Ooh, yeah. It's, you can pick up a used boat, and I know this isn't cheap, but for still like 30,000, 40,000 euros, you can have a boat on a trailer fully kitted and sails ready to go sail across the Atlantic in a race. And there's an wow. amazing fleet and support system with tons of races, single and double-handed. Yeah. And double-handed's really popped on the radar with it being announced in the 2024 Olympics and going forward from there where all the big race races and race committees are realizing, oh, we need double-handed categories. And yeah. misery loves company, so I would love to do offshore racing with other people. <laughs> yeah. So, so you know, this is exactly what I've been talking to uh, Ryan about and yeah. Melody about, because if uh, in Canada, there are not many people, obviously we're both you know can- Canadians, it's uh, the, although I don't sound like it, I gotta say, I gotta work on that. But the, um, the, the, there's an opportunity here to, for people who have not been involved in this kind of competition before to step forward and to be involved. And those who are up for it have an opportunity to go to the Olympics. Rob is very keen, Melody's keen, you're keen. It's like, um, that's possible, as you say, it's affordable and it's a very high level of competition. It's gonna be very exciting. Well, it's, it, with the Olympics being a goal, it also sets up just being able to pull people into this magical world of offshore sailing through, through yeah. training and development. And yeah. that means we can pull people from dinghy sailing, from skiff sailing, from big boat sailing, retired sailors and people who are in it right now and bring yeah. them all together and go, here's some boats, yeah. let's, let's go have totally. fun. That's you know? absolutely my vision. And I've been, mm. uh, I was actually approached by uh, a, a guy here in Nova Scotia who is part of the offshore category, the Olympic offshore um, uh, board, who were putting together the, the boats and the event and, and looking at how that would go. He was asking me a couple of questions about, you know, should they go for a boat with ballast in or kind of get an idea of what my thoughts were on that. Um, it seems to have settled down into now, it may well be a foiling boat, but it's going to be a, you know, a, a a relatively small boat, something along the lines of a J105. I think Benito are going to be building around 27 feet. And um, hmm. it, it's not terribly expensive. It's uh, clearly, if you're going to go to anything to do with sailing on your own, it's expensive. But if people come together, if organizations come together, if sponsors come together, the boats are affordable. And, um, and it's great because, you know, you could, have a, a, you could have a team of 16-year-olds can spank some 50-year-olds. But equally, you could have some 50-year-olds spank some 21-year-olds. It's not going to be all about the physical thing. It's going to be about you know, keeping the boat together and tactics and all kinds of things. It's going to be very exciting. That's, it's, it's such a good level playing field offshore because it's not just your ability to hike and you know, yes. squirm your boat through waves. And it's not just your ability to be stubborn and push your boat yep. mentally through waves. It's this wonderful mix of that and technical yep. ability. I was kind of, I was figuring they'd go for a Figaro or something like that, where it's cutting totally. edge and exciting, but it's, yeah. you know, they're still expensive. 
<laughs> yeah, I talked to I talked to Ryan. I, I forget now the exact details of what he put to me. He's like on it, like you wouldn't believe. But um, I think it's like one hundred eighty-eight thousand somethings, either dollars or euros or something, which is clearly very expensive. This is yeah. the cost of a house. However, boats do get a lot more expensive than that. So it puts it in the playing field where you could yeah. have. 10 or 15 people in a syndicate and you could kind of make it happen or you could be involved in a club or an organization or what have you. Here in Canada, we have uh, the charity Wind Athletes, which I'm working with, and they are—they uh, have been helping people to get to the Olympics for Canadians for a number of years. So they're, they're out there very aware of this. I think the thing that's exciting also is that they're going to be using a lot of modern technology to really bring this race to life because one of the biggest things that happens with offshore sailing, the difficulty is that if you want to get a sponsor involved, if you want to get get um, an audience involved the problem is there's like there's a start line and then everybody disappears they just disappear yeah. over the horizon they're gone now for with four the days Vonde, and then they come yeah, back exactly oh well how, how was it well it was great yeah we had all these things happen <laughs> now with uh, onboard communications we've seen it more in the Vonde globe recently um you know, there's an opportunity to see everything that's happening on deck everything that's happening with the the the, the, the tactics and have good commentators overlaying that and obviously see what's going on inside the boat and, and connect and get characterization of the sailors um oh. Oh, that's yeah. what I think sailing needs because uh, certainly I, I did the the round the world thing and there was a documentary of it and I think at that time it was a little bit unusual because I really kind of like opened up on on who I was and my emotions I then got asked to go and do some uh, work with the the Volvo race as it was then they just introduced the media people the, the onboard media reporter and they wanted to kind of get a feel for like other other ways of characterizing the sailors because up until that point there was just a feeling they're like kind of prima donnas that are getting paid a lot of money uh, and kind of be having seem to be having a problem on the boat somewhere but the story obviously <laughs> is a lot deeper than that and the media people were able to draw that out but it is this this uh it's it's a frontier it's there's not many frontiers i think you're in one right now but there's not many people that that are i think sailing is one that you can you can choose to go frontier with your friends on a saturday you know for the afternoon and then come back seeing people going doing that in the olympics is going to be very interesting i think it will open up sailing to a, a different kind of audience and uh, that could be very good for sailing as a whole well it's got this amazing thing offshore sailing where the human story and athletic capability, they're one. There isn't, you tell one story and then the other, they're, they're married right there. You're seeing people go through their worst days and their best days all within the same race. Yes, and it's, absolutely. And if you can tell that story as it's happening, I think it'll do wonders for the sailing world because people will start to pay more attention to it. Like, oh wow, totally. okay, this is a thing. Yeah, but yeah. For, for a lot of folks- I, I would say, right now that like melody uh, that we've both sailed with with her experience that and, and all the things she's done our olympic training with the uh, when she was younger the clipper stuff she's doing the things she's doing with spartan i would say within a couple of years she could be one of the premier options in canada to go to the games and she's uh we can't mention a, a date or, a, or an age because you know she's a, a lady but uh she has a 22 23 year old daughter she's you know, she's not a she's not a babe in arms and she can go and compete because in sailing age is off the pretty much off the table like as long as you can do the actual actions on deck it's about 
yeah, it's about tenacity and it's about tactics and it's about uh, you know, awareness and it's, uh, there's a whole other raft of things which come to bear that are not present in a 420 race or a 49er race or a, you know, a whip around the, 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 the cans in a, in a soling or something. I think we're going to see something different and a different kind of person step forward uh, into the offshore category and, and potentially be very, very successful. Oh, yeah. Well, you need grit and tenacity, and that she, she definitely has. If you give her oh, a boat sure. and a dry suit, she'll go anywhere. It fuels a lot of things. It's, uh, I remember, is it um, the film A Bridge Too Far with, uh, who's in that? Um, Anthony Hopkins and Sean Connery are in it, and I think uh, they're trying to like make a big push into occupied Holland, and they, they land, and the whole landing is a bit of a mess, and uh, this uh, young corporal or something comes up to the the major which is sean connery and says uh, a cup of tea sir and he says uh (laughs) you know our our men are scattered across many miles where they shouldn't be and all our equipment is smashed to pieces and we have no chance of uh, how the hell can a cup of tea help and he's like well it couldn't hurt sir he's like oh good point yeah milk and two sugars (laughs) (laughs) you can never really go wrong (laughs) our men are scattered across the western fronts (laughs) that's it yeah (laughs) Yeah, he just passed away recently hey I, uh, I, That's a uh, loss, right there. Yeah, he'll he will forever live on in my mind, almost every day. In two things, one is the okay. celebrity Jeopardy. Uh, oh, I don't know that. <laughs> oh, he, just look up YouTube uh, Sean Connery celebrity Jeopardy. Okay, it's, I'm literally reaching for a pen and a piece of paper. That sounds like good advice. <laughs> it will definitely lighten your day. And it's just okay. him saying weird things like, oh, yes, Trebek. Like, I'll take the penis mightier for 300. Trebek's like, you mean the, pe- the, the pen is mightier? Yes, the penis mightier. <laughs> oh, it's so good. And okay, have you, I'll look ha- for that. And have you ever seen, he did this real weird artsy movie called Zardoz. No, okay, I gotta get my pen back out. <laughs> it's he ends up. I don't know the. It's fucking weird. It's just, he ends up on this planet of like women who hate men but need them to breed, and like they hate. <laughs> that sounds like a problem built for built for him. They hate penises and guns, and it's just Sean Connery, and he's wearing a red leather speedo and red like. Uh, <laughs> oh, what do you call those sexy little things? <laughs> Suspenders. <laughs> oh, just, what? Just walking. Suspe- you mean like North American suspenders or European suspenders? Because they're two t- completely different things. Well, I'd say the. You mean sexy, like the braces? Yeah, there's sexy North American suspenders, color matched to wow. his like red pleather speedo that he just. I can just about like build that into my head, but when you said, and I thought it was European suspenders, like this is, I don't want to watch this. This is completely going to alter my idea of Sean Connery. But there's a teaching moment here. What's a What's a European suspender? Oh, it's the things that hold up uh, stockings, like old styles. Before you had the keep-up stockings uh, with the little rubber things on the inside, the suspender belts would women would wear would hold up their stockings, literally. Oh, those are fun. Those are really yeah. fun. They're, they're <laughs> massively complex to understand, but, um, but, but I think qual- qualitatively different from what you're discussing. <laughs> yeah, one, go, one goes up, one goes down. Yeah, totally, exactly. That's well, so, I should look at it. So Zardos, like Z-A-R-D-O-S. Z- I think it's Z-A-R-D-O-Z. Or it's on... D-O-Z. Can, I think oh, the of whole course. movie's 
on YouTube. And it's if you want to spend two hours going like, what? <laughs> it's, I'm up for it. <laughs> it's it's maybe, great. Maybe by the end of this gin and tonic, I'll, I'll be ready. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Sean Connery. <laughs> Yeah, it's a, I, I do understand that towards the end of his life, he, uh, I think he'd, uh, dementia had taken its toll on him and uh, mm. he, he perhaps wasn't 100% where he was uh, in, in, his, uh, in his finer years. But um, as you say, that, that legend will live on long after us. Oh, yeah. He left us all with a high standard of Scottish speech, drinking and dressing. <laughs> Well, also, it's, uh, is it Scottish speech or Russian? Like, he was able to, like, uh, dodge between roles without having to change his accent. Like, okay, he's driving a massive, giant, uh, you know, uh, typhoon-class right. submarine with the same accent. Like, no problem. Sure, he's Russian. Like, do whatever it's you want, same. right? Well, what a lot of people don't know is that Russian and Scottish are almost the same once you've had a few drinks. <laughs> <laughs> was that... Um, when they did uh, 300, didn't uh, didn't uh, they have kind of Scottish accents in that? I think they did, didn't they? Oh, yeah. I, well, they did, right. Scotland gets its name from Sparta. See, they both start with S and wear, like, cool <laughs> dresses. So there's two points well, from... Each category. I, I have a close close friend, Chris Kelly, who I was uh, a, a, a volunteer with many years ago, and, and uh, he has uh, lectured me at length uh, to my great education as to how tough the ancient Scots were. So I have no doubt that you're speaking the absolute truth there. That it's, <laughs> it probably was just Scots clansmen at, uh, at the bottom Battle of Thermopylae. The whole Spartan thing's probably just a bit overblown. Yeah, it, it was really just... <laughs> I'm trying to think of a famous gulch in scotland but i don't have any off the top of my head mm. no i don't either actually i don't know many uh gulches oh they're gonna be called gillies in uh, in scotland ben nevis is a mountain no i, I can't do it man I, I can't help you with gulches in scotland that's not <laughs> if this <laughs> if you'd phone me at who wants to be a millionaire i would have been like sorry i can't i can't help you <laughs> yeah. gulches in scotland for one million dollars um we should we should probably get back to like i'm gonna keep this all in don't worry like it's it's uh you know Every word you say, Rob, is gold. So it's all going in. But um, it's uh, it's not all gold. I've discovered it. You can edit it very cleverly. Is this like a to make me a telling like discourse about your own life? You've already edited quite a lot out. Uh, Hang on, I just got I've got a cat here, which is very insistent to get in the room. I'm just going to get rid of it a second. Hang on. No, bring her in. She she looks friendly. <laughs> I love so much See, watching people talk to their pets like they understand everything and it does understand. What are you talking about? Look, he's come and sat on the chair with me, and now he's going to come and uh, wander around on the desk. <laughs> we we, ju we just have a tail. Hello, sir. Of course, what he'll do is end up just putting his ass towards the camera, and that's the end of that. But um, yeah, he well, understands everything I say. Well, that's what we all signed on to this for. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I can give uh, cat uh, husbandry uh, tips as well as uh, seamanship tips. Um, <laughs> different kind of podcast. Uh, so <laughs> I feel like there should be some like carrot. What are we talking about? Oh, the Olympics and tenacity and grit and all that kind of stuff. Cats. Um, the mini 6.5 then. So you're, you're up for literally like getting one if you can or getting in some deal to get one. And then because it's a, a, their main gig is a transat, right? That's yeah. what those minis are really about. Yeah. I, so I, I've, I've reached out to a few people who are in the fleet because, you know, like so many of these sailing things, you just got to start talking to people to learn totally. about it. 
And totally. like so many sailing things, I've been chatting to people who are full of so much great information. Yes. Um, and the, the way in is, you know, just before the Transat kicks off, the 2021 Transat, they do one every two years, uh, you go and you try and buy the boat before it's done the Transat. So you go oh, okay. kind of like walking the docks, I guess, but in a more digital way, you start chatting to folks, see who's going to be carrying on to the next season racing, see who's going to be selling, and then figure out which boat you want to pick up. And then if they can get the money before the Transat, they're pretty happy and comfortable and then you're happy sure. and comfortable with the person who's sailing the boat in the boat itself yeah and then it gives you two right. years to gear up for the transat you have to do a certain number of solo qualifying miles in right. the class mini race series which they have a awesome series all across the med uh and then across the channel into england so you can you can build a lot of miles in a small area in a really competitive sure. class. And it does yeah. two cool things with it being small and affordable is it brings people to it and it brings people of all ages and backgrounds to it. So you have all this, these different skill sets competing on a pretty even and affordable playing field. And I think so much skill development comes from that because when you can look at the boat on the horizon and match race them knowing you've got the same boat, oh, yeah. it's, it's all yeah. about your output, not the boat. Absolutely, absolutely. It's, it's sometimes what happens in sailing is it ends up an arms race, and I think that's one of the things that some would argue has kind of uh, spoiled the America's Cup. From about 2002 onwards, you had a lingy getting involved, and they proved comprehensively that if you just throw loads of money at the problem of sailing, you you can win. But um, when you're in something like the uh, the mini, there, it's it's it, you know. <laughs> You throw as much money at it as you like, it's but it's still, still going to come down to just, what you do. It's still 21 feet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. How much uh, advantage can you get? So, um, yeah, that's uh, the, the size is you think that you now you're a dinghy sailor originally. So actually 21 feet will make a lot of sense to you. It, it will. It crashes and it bangs and it's wildly uncomfortable. I don't mm. think I don't I, I start asking myself why through this investigation process, would I want to be in a boat that small for that long? Yeah. And it's just an adventure. It's like, oh, totally. okay, cool. It's, it's real. I mean, you get offshore, yeah. there's, there's none of this like phones and notifications and this and that. And that sailing class is just sailing by charts. Like, you're oh, not, really? oh yeah, there's no Adrena, there's no chart plotters. You're sitting there with like, you know, maybe a what? GPS, a sextant, and then a, a paper chart to plot your course. I can already think of five ways to cheat that. I shouldn't <laughs> do anything. <laughs> That's it. It's, it's, it's chart navigation. And then yeah. like a weather forecast coming down yeah, in text it. form or in visual form or? No, uh, over the radio. Over the radio. Wow. Good Lord. Yeah. Oh, that's challenging. That's very challenging. That's, that's what I like about it. They've taken a small, yeah. really cool class and added extra challenges into it that anyone who goes through it is going to learn so much from. Yeah, yeah. And then I see also they're very developmental in that class, right? They, um, they have like scowl bows, those big rounded kind of uh, 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 almost square bows on the things, which give them a huge amount of buoyancy at the front, which means they can surf a lot better for a small boat. And they were in there with canting keels and ballast and, and, and all sorts of things to, to do to get advantage. They've got canting bow spritz and Christ knows what, like anything's, anything's possible if you're in the right class. And uh, that, that helps drive sailing forwards. Well, there's two subclasses of the MIDI. There's production and then there's prototype. And the prototype are the ones, they have ballast, canting keels. Uh, some people are looking at putting foils in them. And then there's the production one, which is right. just no ballast, 
fixed keel, and then there's two hull designs in the production, which is one's called the Maxi, and that has that big round bow, and then right. the other one is a uh, Pogo built boat. It's the Pogo Three, yes. which has yeah. the you know standard pointy bow, and yeah. those those two are always fighting for who's going to win. You know, the the rounded bow goes better downwind, and the pointy bow goes better upwind. Mm. Mm-hmm. But, I'm always interested when I see um, the comparison between what we would consider like ancient boat design and then we see modern boat design. When you look at like a, a Chinese junk rig um, to eyes perhaps mid, uh, mid 20th century, the Chinese junk rig looked like, so what's wrong with these guys? What are they doing wrong? As we get a little bit more uh, uh, further along with our designs, we start to realize that having a big kind of gaff rig essentially is very beneficial having fully battened mainsails is very beneficial. Um, the sampan kind of design of Chinese junk rigs, that kind of bluff bow can be very beneficial. You start to realize like, these guys actually kind of knew quite a lot of what was going on, even down to the point that those um, junk rigs, if you look at the back of the sails, they have these little flutes kind of coming out that uh, has a kind of scalloped back edge to it. And they are called pe- planar winglets, which is exactly what you get on the back of like a condor's wing. And they help to um, stabilize and reduce um, drag coming off the back of the, of the sails. So you start to realize that like, we're kind of going around in a circle with sailboat design now. As we get more and more advanced mm-hmm. with flat top mains, fully battened mainsails, that kind of stuff, we get closer to the designs we were writing off 100 years ago. Well, I think you put it perfectly one time talking about this, saying that it, it is the oldest science in the world, and people have been at this for thousands of years. It's a strange thing, yeah. It's, it's, uh, I, I think I might have thrown that out there once or twice and then re- started to realize there's a bit, a bit of truth in it. It's, uh, it's, I guess in the very, very beginnings of it, like the first couple of days, it was a bit of uh, shoot and, and kind of see what happens, but um, very quickly people started to realize, oh, a pull here, tension there, and then that quickly developed into, you think of like uh, man of war ships in the, the, the 1800s, like they were complex pieces of equipment, which um, until the industrial revolution, they were comparable to the most complicated machines in the world. It was, as you say, science. And uh, that's kind of got lost a little bit now. We're not really doing that kind of thing anymore. But um, yeah, it's a uh, it's pretty, old, pretty old gig, right? I wouldn't say it's the oldest uh, profession, but <laughs> it's close. All right, well, when I look at America's Cup stuff and I kind of scoff at it, like, oh, that's not real sailing. Uh, people like it, but then, and it's nice to see on at the bar and folks watching it, but then when we go back to the opposite side of that, there's companies out there pushing slow trade on tall ships, like moving rum back and forth across <clears throat> the Atlantic oh, Ocean. Yeah. Oh, I think there's a huge uh, thing opening up there. If you look at um, ships, when I first got involved in offshore racing, that the, the highest kudos was to overtake a big ship at sea. They were doing like 20 knots. So if you could literally call them up and say, you know, big ship, big ship, this is little boat. Um, look out <laughs> on your starboard quarter. I'm overtaking you. They'd yeah. be like, what? You know, so you, that was great. Now they're doing like 12 knots. We've got the super slow steaming protocol. Um, yeah. We've got, obviously they want to save money on diesel. They want to uh, be as efficient as they possibly can. And they very quickly realized with modern computerized um, systems in shops and companies and warehouses, they're able to they don't have to like deliver everything like instantaneously. They can get ahead of the curve. They know what the patterns are. So it's not necessary to go at that kind of speed anymore. It's much more efficient to go at 12 knots. So once you're at 12 knots, you're like, well, hang on. If you look back at the historical uh, records from the big clipper ships, from you know, the T-clippers the and the grain clippers, they're doing 10, 12 knots. Um, 
I don't know exactly how we can get through the windless periods. I guess that's electric engines and all that kind of stuff that will come along. But um, also we look at the fact that, you, you know, you take big ships and you bring them into container ports and then you offload all that stuff to coastal lighters and then they go down the rivers and there's a huge amount of industry that's based around that where you could just have a lot more boats moving smaller amounts directly from, you know, the point of origin to the to the de destination without the need for lighters. And there's a lot of jobs involved in that. So uh, I guess also look at like uh, super yachts like Maltese Falcon. They already have fully computerized sail systems you know moving stuff around no problem at all so it's possible it's just whether we choose to go in that direction well one of the guys that um got me kind of back into sailing after being away from it since dinghy sailing was this this wild dude his name was fluffy and i met him at a <laughs> i met him at a circus camp in the dominican republic we were both there learning okay. we we're both there learning trapeze and i was like <laughs> what do you do and he worked for this company called Trace Hombres, who's still going. And yeah. they s sail cargo back and forth across the Atlantic with the trade winds on a tall ship. And it's, right. they've kind of organized their business. So they have a distillery on one end and the transport of the rum at sea, like it's just in the aging mm. process. And then they move stuff kind of an equal sort back across the Atlantic. But I'd love to see that industry go somewhere because it's... If we can plan these things, which we can, we all have calendars now and, you know, yeah. a million different devices. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We could start putting like, time and money into like adventurous, fun trading expeditions. There's a couple of companies doing that. There's uh, guys out of uh, Lunenburg. When I very first arrived here, they had just taken a uh, trawler and they had um, developed the trawler into a trading vessel. And I'm not sure exactly where it's at now. I don't know many details about this, but they had taken an existing steel boat and then modified it back into being a sailing ship. And I wow. believe the last, they're moving organic chocolate. I think they're moving wine. Um, I think they're moving uh, different sorts of spirits or something else they're moving as well. They were, they were finding a niche and they were finding a market from the fact that it was moved in this way. You know, you want to get, is the best Cuban cigar one that's made in a machine, which is, you know, mathematically correct? Or is it one that's rolled by someone who's an artisan in that? I, I think we all know the answer to that. If you could put some value on the way things are moved and that it has been shipped in this way, then then there's a market and there's no reason to think there's not a market for it it's uh we can physically cover the distance we can put well I, i'm just talking to a, a new sponsor at the moment for spartan and they are talking about um hydrogen batteries and uh and hydrogen uh, uh engines now i'm just kind of throwing what? those words out there. I, I, I don't i don't know the details so let me let me circle background yeah. when i know more about what i'm talking about but essentially hydrogen is the the fuel source for this um if that's true if that's possible then you could easily look at combinations of things where it's uh, the wind doing part of the work and it's uh you know and, and it's engines of a, a kind of type that we might recognize an internal combustion engine but powered by hydrogen instead and if that's uh, possible then uh i don't know the, the big ship thing you know you look at the the vietnam conflict and uh that's really where containerization started the the, the u.s was moving a lot of stuff around and they wanted to get a system which made it very much easier to do that. It wasn't just being loaded on and off uh, ships. There's a lot of conspiracy that obviously they wanted to have what they were moving in sealed boxes where no one could see what was what. But however yeah. it came about, 
the modern 20 foot and 40 foot container came from the 60s. Any shipping company that didn't go to containerization in the 60s didn't exist by the 70s. Um, containerization has become the de facto way of doing things. I totally understand how that happens. It's not perhaps the best way for a sailing ship to be laden because the <laughs> container itself has a lot of weight to it. But oh, yeah. it, uh, if there's some kind of like halfway house in that, um, absolutely like why why not put them on a sailing vessel and then to you know receive my 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 bottle of spirits or whatever it is i feel pride in the fact that it was created uh, and delivered in this in this uh, socially responsible way i think it's possible oh yeah well the fitting the fitting big like spinny sails on the top of cargo ships now that are they actually doing it is it actually happening yeah uh, okay. uh there's some that's awesome fancy name for the effect like if you drop a ball and spin it backwards it'll you know gain lift and fly forwards oh yeah what's that called um words starts with an m the magnus effect that sounds about right i've watched those aussie guys they chuck them like off dams and stuff and getting this incredible that lift yeah that, that lift si from it sciencey thing <laughs> that thing that, that thing that thing that we can't remember the name of yeah yeah they've, they've put that concept <laughs> on big spinny like type sails on top of boats to kind of help wow. give them some sort of lift that propels them forward and it cuts down sure. on the fuel usage. Sure. So, well, there's uh, companies that make their money already by routing ships. One of the greatest ways of working out kind of which way to go on a sailboat if you've not got anything else is just follow the ships because um, they're definitely on the most economical path and they're definitely not going upwind if they can possibly help it. So those companies make their money by getting a small percentage increase in the efficiency of the ship. So if a, a sail combination will do that, then I'm, I'm sure they'll go for it. Oh, yeah. And industry and science and tech are always driven by where the money is and fuel prices yeah. are coming up. So the money is now yeah. driving to find more fuel efficient methods. Yeah. And I think we're going to, it's going to start with these big companies. Yeah. It's, that's I, where, I, I worked for a guy called um, Mike McElroy uh, early in the 2000s and he was uh, one of the whistleblowers on Enron. We always used to get a kind of um, mixed reception when we went into port in his super yacht. If people knew who he was, they yeah. had respect. If they lost money on Enron and didn't know who he was, we kind of got a lot of hassle, right? But he was a very experienced, um, well, geologist like yourself. He, uh, he'd been the exploration director for Enron for years. And um, he was a very nice guy, absolutely uh, beside himself about what had happened with Enron and the direction it had gone. But um, I remember sitting late night with him uh, on the boat and we'd had a party and there were lots of different um, drinks and half empty whatevers, uh, you know, hanging around the table. And um, he, he, we were talking about this and we were talking about, you know, what's still left in the earth. And you'll know much more about this than I do. But he was saying that um, when they were looking for oil in the 50s and the 60s, every time they found a new you know, a new vein or a new, a new oil field or whatever the, the correct word is for that. It, it, and he, he, he got a glass that was still full and he said, it's like this, you know, it's still, it's full. Um, then he said, as it's gone on, and this was the 2000s, he said in the 90s when we're looking for stuff, everything is like, and he picked up a glass at almost nothing and he said, it's like this. So they're having to do horizontal drigging, drilling and, and fracking and, and, and trying to wash out these oil sands. And, and he, at that point in the early uh, 20s, uh, sorry, in the early 2000s, said that by the mid-2020s and, and, uh, and the, the, by 2030, that uh, diesel and fuel would be at such a premium that uh, he thought that his own boat, the super yacht we were working on, would be tied up against the key. It wouldn't be able to 
be it wouldn't be economical to run it. So I'm not sure if he's exactly right. I'm sure technology has moved on a bit from them, but there's there's no doubt that it's all on the wane. So you may as well start imagining new technologies right now because within our lifetime they're going to be required. There's no doubt about it. No, it's it's a non-renewable resource, and it's there's yeah. a lot of variables into figuring out how much is left. Like rate of discovery yeah. is one of those, but then there's a million variables right. in the rate of discovery. Yeah, but. It, on a long enough time scale, we're, we're going to run out. And yeah, I, it's, it's a finite resource. The planet is a finite resource. We clearly can't have infinite growth based on a finite resource. No, I really tuned into this when I was working in Saudi Arabia and I ended up working on a government project there, helping them develop the framework for international investment into mineral exploration. Because they had realized on a base level, like, oh shit, like, we're going we're gonna to run out. So we need to start looking for other shiny things that we can yeah, yeah. Pe- pedal across the world to buy more guns and <laughs> start more wars. Um, yeah. I mean, that's another <laughs> topic. That's a whole other podcast. But there's clearly a reason why Dubai has got so big, so fast. You know, there was a point in the early 2000s, again, I had a friend, Karen, that was out there, and she, she was writing to me, and she said, do you realize that half of the tower cranes in the world are active in Dubai right now. It was about 2007, 2008, something like that. I'm like, that's, that's not possible. How can half the world's tower cranes? But she was absolutely right. And it's clearly they're trying to, trying to create something before the oil ran out. It's, it's mental there. I, when, I, when I was in Saudi, I would do a visa run to Dubai. And I would go from living in a little Bedouin community, pretty close to the Yemeni's border, just as the war was kicking off. Oh. And you're just there trying to fit in, hoping nobody notices you. And then you <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure that's going to work for you, Rob. You don't really look like uh, you fit in in the Bedouin camp. It worked. If I I just wear a, like a full head wrap, I had a big beard and sunglasses, and oh, ev- sure. everybody thought I was somebody for a while. And I had a driver <laughs> who really played the part, like sh- showing me around. And it, it worked for a couple of months, and I was like, all right, we're we're sweet. Everybody thinks you know I'm some important Arab dude. Uh, no one's going to know who I am, where I am, or what I'm doing. And then I went to the village market, and everyone's like, oh, yeah, you're the Brit. <laughs> I'm like, ah, shit. <laughs> I'm not and, as smart as I thought I was. <laughs> yeah, this whole town just called me the Brit. But then I... But you were going, you're going to Dubai for a, a visa run? Yeah, and then you'd get to Dubai and just into complete opulence for two days and just be shocked. Mm. Like, I'd just be standing at the mm. grocery store looking at, like, wow, choices. Yeah. And That's another thing that comes from traveling here. I've got to say, like, there's not one time I go in a supermarket and think it's normal. Like, I still, every time, walk around the aisles going, like, this is crazy. Like, there's so much stuff here. Like, what, what happens when this stuff goes out of date? Where does it go? And I think about experiences I've had in the back of China and Nepal and Tibet and, you know, it, like, very, very poor communities that would be struggling even for the, the, the smallest scraps that are on those shelves. You think, this is, this is not normal. It's good to have these range of experiences in our lives. It's the grocery store is always the weirdest place for me after I mm. finish some big expedition. Mm. I'll never forget the first time it happened was I'd spent like four months way up in the Pacific Northwest, just around the Alaskan Panhandle. Yeah. And then I flew back to Toronto and just paced the aisles of an IGA. Just kind of like in some kind of shell shock of like, yeah. there's Dorito this and Dorito that. Yeah. And just like staring at the chip aisle while my poor like partner at the time was just looking at me like, what the hell is wrong with you? <laughs> <laughs> 
but what you've just come from is, I guess, well, certainly up there, it's like it's a land where if you want to eat, you better go out and find it. Well, yeah, you're sleeping in a tent, spooning your shotgun, like, dry, <laughs> like that's, that's it. We had sure. this wonderful idea to, um, instead of using canvas wall tents like we'd usually up there, the head geo on this project wanted to use uh, 100% uh, made from 100% recycled yurts that were these, like, geodesic domes of recycled right. garbage bags that had all been fused together and plastic okay. poles. And okay. they all... It ended up being a giant light tent. And when you're up there and the sun goes down at like 2.30 in the morning for an hour, <laughs> it was the worst thing ever. And it, it was built so these bags like layered on top of each other. And there's pine beetles up there, which are these huge like four inch long monstrosities that just bumble down the creek, hit these layers of garbage bags and then crawl inside. And they just, they stare at you and they wait for you to go to sleep. And then I swear to God, they fucking attack you. But they're, they're so big that you don't want to squish them. It's so crunchy and juicy. But then it's, it's the, they're like coconut beetles, if you've ever seen those. They're like that yeah. size. But they've got yeah. these massive pincers for chewing through oh, trees. Wow. And they, oh, they, no. They watch you. Like you'll pace around your little tent, and they're just like they're slowly moving to keep their little beetly eyes on you. Got nightmares. About okay, these I don't. I don't want to be Billy Two Sheds here. In the in the Navy in the UK, it was Billy Two Sheds. Like you got a gun shed, I got two sheds. You got a black cat, I got a black panther. But I remember uh, <laughs> coconut coconut something makes you remember being on an expedition in Japan, and uh, I was in my tent and I could hear something like moving around in the brush around me. So I was like, you know, I was kind of awake. So I'm like, what what is this? Is this like a small animal or what? I went out and had my first confrontation with a coconut crab. Have you come across them? I've heard uh, otherwise known I've as robber crabs. Yeah. Oh, it's it's not the thing to find with your head torch at two in the morning when you're living inside a, a, a you know, your your accommodation is a, a, a skin of uh, of mylar or something like they are. They're, they're strong enough. They can climb a coconut tree and then rip the coconut husk off with their with their pincers and then get into the, the thing. They are petrifying. They're crabs technically, but um you know, if they came from another planet, I wouldn't be surprised at all. So I'm, I'm more than aware of, uh, as you say, of things that can be um, bumbling around in the night. When I lived in Hong Kong, it was a, a lot of um, spiders were the thing that tended to uh, do the same thing, like lurk and wait for you. Not you. Some people might say it's not malicious. If you live there, you realize that's not quite what's going on. They are, they are definitely after you. So, yeah. And they're, of course, crinkling around in the walls while you're trying to sleep, right? Oh, Yeah. No. <laughs> have you ever left port with something, a creature on your boat that shouldn't have been there? Yeah, I left Newfoundland with you on board. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> you set that up. <laughs> um, creatures on board? No, I, I think, uh, you know what? I was, I was having a chat with a friend the other day and we, we got on to tongue lice. I don't know if you've come across this, but oh. there's, um, yeah, I got hit by a flying fish somewhere uh in the Atlantic and uh, you know, you get hit, which is already a bit of a kind of like an offense to your person because <laughs> something's just slapped you around the face that you weren't expecting like two pound fish. But then something was on the deck and I thought, Oh my God, like some part of the fish has come off. You know, this, there doesn't seem to be many demountable parts of a fish. And I, um, I had a look and there was this weird, like gray white thing, which I guess would have the kind of consistency of a giant tick. And it had these like, 
10 legs that were obviously for grip, grabbing hold of something. And I kind of like prodded it and poked it and, uh, and, and then kicked it over the side. like, I'm just going to go into denial. That didn't just happen. Later research discovered that there's this kind of um, parasite that gets into the mouths of fish and um, uh, I believe eats away their tongue and then replaces their tongue and then lives on the food that the fish eats whilst it's in the fish's mouth. So I, that's not that okay. was bad enough <laughs> that, that, that's just not okay yeah because then you have all kind of dreams like of what happens if it gets in my mouth <laughs> like, you, <know. laughs> you go to sleep with your mouth taped shut <laughs> <laughs> exactly oh, what did, oh my goodness what's it like in fiji is there lots of bugs in the in the woods for you there no it's so friendly like nothing's gonna really? bite you no one's gonna shoot you like it's oh. great yeah the, the, awesome I, there's some kind of poisonous centipede here, but I haven't seen that one yet. Oh, dude, I've been bitten by a giant centipede. That is no fun. Avoid them. Ugh. But do you do you remember me getting hit by a, a puffin leaving? What? I, th I think it was between Newfoundland and that strange French island. Canadians ignore. <laughs> <laughs> I think you mean St. Pierre, Miquelon. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Who I have a lot of great friends there, and I really like the place. Yes, no, that strange French island. It's, a, it's um, a lovely place, but so much of Canada doesn't know it exists. It's just no, off the I, coast. There's French coffee yes. and baguettes and cuisine. But <laughs> it's very strange. It's an yeah. internal flight between France and, and a place which is 11 kilometers off the coast of Newfoundland. Although France is a, France is a bit like that, right? You, Reunion Island is yeah. an internal flight in France. So I guess they're used to it. But you got hit by a puffin. That's, that's good going, man. Well, it was, I, I think, think it I was do remember this leg of the journey. And it was yeah. just, it was totally dark. And you couldn't see the bow. You could barely see <laughs> um, any of the digital readouts on the mast. And there was no autopilot. And we were heading pretty downwind. <laughs> so it was just like nervously steal, steering by fear like by feel feel yeah maybe yeah. fear <laughs> a bit too <laughs> steering by fear <laughs> yeah. yeah i know that feeling <laughs> yeah i think at some point that night I and it was like, a puffin throw, i've thrown i threw up at some point that night while holding the wheel it was just good man so did you let go or did you just wipe off the puke i didn't i couldn't let go to wipe it off somebody said it <laughs> that's good <laughs> sounds like a sailing story but now it's nighttime. Are you sure it wasn't a, a fog bat? Because uh, <laughs> no, it was a freaking puffin. I kid Are you, you not. Sure? Yeah, this thing like we're going through some pretty like what I'll call rough weather because you couldn't see a damn thing. Like the sails yeah. are flapping this way and that, and I'm terror. Oh, I see you're a sailor yeah. of the, yeah. the the spreaders or uh, the running backstays. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Like, sure. Don't drive, don't drive. We're all gonna die. We're all gonna die. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty much written in the standing orders, isn't it? Don't drive, you'll die. And then <laughs> I, there's just this like ping, and something like pings one of the spreaders, careens into the sail, and it goes poof, and hits the ground just in front of the wheel. And I'm wow. Like, oh God, what do I do? Oh God, what do I do? And it's this puffin just freaking yeah. like looking at me. I'm just like, oh, it's a puffin. It's the, it's those cute birds from the Discovery Channel. Now, are you sure it wasn't a panting? No, it, it was pretty puffin-esque. I, I don't know. My... I don't know. There's a lot of puffin and panting when you're on deck, mate. <laughs> See what I did there? <laughs> I didn't well, realize. Well, I've never heard of anybody being hit by a puffin, but that's... Um, well, technically that's, that's... it was the boat, and then I scooped it up to throw oh. it off. And this is where I discovered puffins are not just these cute, wonderful animals that have no. the voice of David Attenborough surrounding them. They are designed <laughs> for ripping and tearing flesh. <laughs> Oh, wow. 
It, yeah. it, did, it, did it take that out on you? Did it take its frustrations out on you? I tried to scoop it like a chicken where you get like yeah. kind of you hook above the, the, the claws, but puffins in their short little puffin legs. Right. And I caught a little claw in the palm. So I'm like, ooh. Hurt physically, mentally, just some vomit beside me, and then still holding the wheel, terrified of jiving. Uh, wow. You know, all... I, I feel like I should offer you a refund, but... Um, <laughs> I don't think I paid. I'm not going <laughs> to. It was developmental. That's what yeah. happened. For you and the puffin. Well, I, I've never yeah. been hit by a puffin, man. You've totally... Now, I see you bully two sheds me now. I don't know... Now, whatever, what else have I been hit by? Oh, I got hit by no, a uh, California <laughs> condor once. What? <laughs> No. No, no, no. Okay. Oh, phew. <laughs> I have to go back to like RYA base level one if I haven't been uh, able to match you on the being hit at school. Uh, uh, hit at sea, rather. Um, what have I. No. You know what? No, I haven't. The only story I've got about being hit by anything is I was on deck with uh, a great mentor of mine, um, Sandy, uh, Sandy Ma, and uh, we were know, in the South China Sea or something. And. Uh, Somebody had come on deck and about in the in the last hour and said, "Would anybody like oranges?" And uh, we'd all said no. And then we were kind of like the, the participants were were driving the boat, and we were kind of like on watch. We were like you know snoozing a bit. There wasn't much going on. And um, Sandy suddenly got to his feet and went, "Who's throwing oranges?" And I went, <laughs> what? Who's throwing oranges? And then he kind of came to his senses, and we kind of and he'd been hit by a flying fish. But in his mind, the, the oranges story and the flying fish story were the same story. So whenever I see a, a flying fish on deck now, I always cry out, who's throwing oranges? Yeah. Dodging oranges. Exactly. Oh, um, so what's, the, uh, what's the, the, the next couple of days for you then? What's, uh, what's happening in Fiji? Just to give us an idea of how remote and how different your life is at the moment. Well, we're in a phase where we're, we're not in the jungle anymore because it's raining so much right mm. now so i'm working from home away from home right so it's just kind which of which i'm going to be able to see when i finally receive the file from you with both because obviously i'm looking at the screen now and you're not there oh, yeah, i'm you, just looking you, at a reflection of myself you, you can't see <laughs> so i'm excited to see how you look man you look great <laughs> i was just gonna pick up the camera to show you around uh we'll do it and then i'll see it later <laughs> it's uh oh god the, the bodies are on the couch it's a podcast for most yeah. people so you can describe it that's fine yeah, well, and um, if you're listening to this and want to see what Rob's showing us, look oh, at YouTube. Yeah. Well, I'm renting this like lovely little two bedroom apartment, and it's too bright to see outside. This isn't going to work. It's just, it's okay. me in this lovely little like two bedroom condo. Just des describe it to us. Is it like a high street and shops and things like most people know, or is it a village in Fiji? No. So I'm in a place called Fantasy Island where all your wildest dreams of boredom that's literally a film isn't it yeah and castaway i saw films. that advertised are Ten. you in another tv production rob is that what's going on here <laughs> never <laughs> i got the t-shirt oh uh, yeah and then uh -huh. I, i'll I, remind you of that further down the line i got the t-shirt and i burnt it <laughs> that's it <laughs> but no i'm in this this little island it's kind of actually like, didn't uh, i write the reference that helped you get that job <laughs> should i should i feel bad now <laughs> you did this yeah, I think I did that to you, man. Sorry about that. I'm, I'm trying to Got my use my words flesh. to describe and paint the Sorry, picture yes. of where I am. Yes. It's basically, a, there's okay. a bunch of vacation rental villas that are dirt cheap now because nobody's here. So you can rent okay, you got a five... To, I think you've got to like focus on like how amazing it is, not the, the you know, kind of like the price point here. You're in Fiji, man. Come on. Oh, we're yeah, we're no. all like, it's snow, it's Fiji. ice, it's winter. Give us the story. I'm in Fiji in a massive vacation villa 
with mm. like the island, what feels like to myself. Because all the, oh wow, all the expats left the tourism industry, which is like ninety five percent of the industry here, is on hold with COVID. So right, uh, a lot of doors are shut. But on the positive side of that, being here and being fortunate enough to have like a job and a means of transportation here. That means I have the best waves in the world at my doorstep, and they're empty every day of the week. Oh, wow. It's, That's cool. That's very cool. And it's being in this season where, you know, we're not in the bush or in the jungle working, so I'm not constantly freaking out about everything. Um, <laughs> my schedule just revolves around the surf, and it's if there's a swell coming, well, I'm not going to be in the office for two days. And <laughs> if, if it's raining and there's no surf, yeah, I'll, I'll be there working hard and diligently. But the, the next few days for me are really trying to find flights out of Fiji. Because as magical and wonderful as having this island sort of to myself has been, it's, uh, it gets small, like any tropical paradise does sure. after a while. Sure. And uh, you sure. know, I'm ready for some hugs and some friends and a cup of coffee yeah. with somebody. So yeah. I think from here, I'm going to go to Dubai, where I have some friends there and it's a little more open. I can just rent an apartment by the marina there. And hang out for a month or so, and then hopefully uh, from there, plan an attack into Portugal. Oh yeah, that's happening. So the, just to give you an FYI, the yeah. uh, if that's if that's correct that the the twenty eighth of February is indeed the the time when uh, Portugal opens up. Like uh, if you're into it, then then come to Portugal. Ryan's going to be making his way over there. I think Melody needs to go a little bit later on, but um, yeah. no, the the gig is. Uh, from the logistics I've worked out now, I will go to Spain and I will pick up Challenger, which is sitting in Spain at the moment. I will drive it down the coast uh, after my own quarantine there and drive it to, to the like offshore, basically. And then yeah. you guys will have got Longobarda ready and then we all come back across the Atlantic to Canada with these, with these boats. Yeah, Pre prepping a maxi for a crossing seems a lot more comfortable than prepping, say, Challenger for a crossing because you're just going to Excuse your nice... Excuse me. <laughs> you're just going to hey, your nice I have, I have cooked on that stove for 16 people at sea for 16 days, single burner stove, no problem at all. That is the height of luxury. I have, I have sailed Challenger... What's the longest trip? I've done Challenger from St. Martin to Nova Scotia uh, with, oh. on my own with no autopilot. So the, she now has an autopilot fitted. So I'm, I'm excited to be able to power her up a bit because I always detune the boat when I'm uh, taking people out who are new yeah. to the boat. And uh, the times that I have had her on my own, she had no autopilot. So again, you have to detune to be able to balance the boat with no autopilot. Um, it would be exciting to take her out and actually have something that's controlling the helm while I can get on with the rest of it. Um, so I think technically what we have here, Rob, is a transatlantic race. Uh, there's you people in your boat and then there's <laughs> me people in my boat. You people. So <laughs> Okay, so, so who do we have on the maxi? It's going to be you yeah. and Ryan. There's, who, a, uh, there's, who's been on there's a win already on there, yep. Well, and then Melody. <laughs> That's okay. a, a, a further min, uh, win. And then there's um, other, other people. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Who do you want on your team? Ryan's got a couple of guys that he wants to bring in, uh, and get involved in it. Um, if there's other people you want to... It's got sleeping for like, I don't know, like 16 people. So, uh, you know, who, who do you want? <laughs> oh, that's bring, bring them along. <clears throat> we just got to be very careful, of course, about COVID and, and everything that's happening there. But yeah. um, we are looking at the moment. We may get a new mainsail for that boat before it sets off. The boat, the mainsail that's on it is a, is a little bit older. 
or what I may do is I may drive Challenger past the doors of the marina where you are, and uh, I have a spare mainsail on Challenger, so you've got like two mainsails to get going. And then we can spend a little bit longer getting exactly the mainsail we want, not rush it, because this is like only you know a month away or so. So um, yeah, it's all to be done. I gotta say, it's uh, that one's got air conditioning and what? a nice galley, and yeah, it's got th three big air conditioning handlers. It's got the uh, it's got the electro uh, hydraulic winches and um, I, can, I think it's going to make you guys soft. I think I, think I can beat you. <laughs> We've got to settle a start line somewhere. And then, uh, and then uh, coming into the bay here is where it's, uh, that's the finish line. So that's a, that's a hard, I don't so, know, I, a maxi against a Whitbread 60. That's kind of even. There's a crew of you guys. There's me guys. Like, I think there's a story in there. <laughs> right, you realize if I beat you, I'll never let you live it down. No, there's you getting smashed about the kitchen <laughs> over a pressure cooker. With us cooking a three-course meal. <laughs> the the difference is, I make that look good. <laughs> the, that, that, there's been some great meals that have come out of Challenger. And it's the art of the pressure cooker. Yeah. It's the pressure cooker, which was uh, brought to us by one of our crew members who came on board. Um, I'm trying to think now. He was Ed Finn was on board, and it was his wife, uh, Red Gina, Regina Finn, who was the person that brought the um, brought the pressure cooker on board. And I've got to say, I was standing well back the first time because I feared that it was going to be like the <laughs> 1970s and things were going to explode. But suddenly, no, lamb, lamb stew came out of it uh, in record time in the middle of the Atlantic. And I realized, wow, this is the way forward. So on uh, for those who don't know, Challenger only has uh, alcohol burners, which we choose because it's a, a lower risk than uh, having LPG. But um, with the pressure cooker in play, my God, it's uh, life is so easy, right? So I love that as well. We talked a little bit earlier on about the fact that, you know, being at sea gives people the opportunity to expand and develop and, and, and kind of show the best of themselves. Sometimes you're best not on deck. Sometimes you're best not tying knots. Sometimes you're best not, you know, doing sailing stuff i've i've been done the clipper race and other races where people have just ex, ex, been amazing in the galley and making the food happen which is such an important part of being at sea it, it can't be underestimated and, and you're right we've had some amazing meals come out of very simple situations um and that person that produced it becomes the hero on deck because because they made that thing happen when you're on deck <laughs> shivering away and you're <laughs> You're a little, uh, well, you know, waterproof. I'm using air quotes here. Yeah. <laughs> Coat. I'll look, I'll see them later, don't worry. <laughs> and overalls. Yeah, a warm yeah. meal is like night and day. It'll absolutely change sure. your life. It's something as small sure. as a cup of tea will change your life when you're up there. I'm absolutely fastidious about that. It's, um, you know, a great day can be ruined by a bad meal. Uh, a, an awful day can be can be made over by by a good meal in the evening. It's, it's uh I know with the solo sailing thing, the whole deal is meant to be that uh, it's all freeze dried and uh, it's as light as possible. And uh, I just don't subscribe to that at all. It's not like I'm taking, um, oh, here comes the cat again. It's not like I'm taking, um, <laughs> it's a very organic situation we're in here. Um, it's not like I'm taking uh, jars of uh, pesto with me, but um, actually, you know what? I am taking jars of pesto with me. I'm not taking other things which seem heavier, but you know, food is so damn important. If you're, if you're not careful about it, you can end up in a situation where you forget about that and the, uh, the experience is lost and you miss a, an important part of what it is to be 
a human being, you know, food is a great big part of our lives. And if you forget that at sea, you don't put any uh, importance on it. You, you miss something. There's, there's uh, coming to the end of the day and having that meal that kind of signals the beginning of the evening and the, the, the change of the watch almost even in a solo situation is, is hyper important. And I, I very much realized that doing the solo stuff. At first, I used to um, plan out each day's food in clear bags you know with labels on like wednesday thursday friday it's very very efficient and um, after a while i realized wow when i get the clear bags out um, i can see what the next day's food is and if the next day's food's not something that i'm looking forward to i spend like 24 hours not looking forward to that that bag of food that's going to come. So I unpacked all the clear bags, put them into a garbage bag and made a bit of a lottery of it and then started to really put aside some time for food production and, uh, and time to sit and enjoy the meal. It was pardon me, it's an absolutely important part of the, of the day. If you forget about that, you've, you've, you've missed uh, three at least great opportunities in the day to, to, to be a hero, you know? Yeah, I, I spent a couple of years in the infantry and got really used to hating that freeze-dried food. Um, oh. Like, what you're reading on your package, you. what you're going to eat today, like, oh, yeah, beans and, like... Yeah. Oh. I hear you. And the, the military rat packs, you know, they, they don't give that um, contract to the, the, the person that puts in the most expensive uh, tender. They, they give it to the cheapest tender. It's, uh, yeah. I, I've, done a, I've done some time on those as well. And it's, um, there's the physiological effect, obviously, of like lots of constipation and things and just that dreary kind of like, oh, the, the food thing is going to be awful. If you, can, uh, if you can change that around, if you can make it something interesting, then, then go for it. I have found even in the solo stuff that the best way to, to do it is still to bring on board some um some elephants uh, some, some elephants some elements that require that's the gin talking so, <laughs> bring on board some elephants yeah, and i'll so leave have some no. white rhino for exactly no bring on board some elements which which mean that food production is a bit more complicated perhaps that's not appropriate for some like really intense things maybe like the mini transat but on an open 60 as even the best in the world have said um you know it's still a kind of racing where you bring books with you um so you can bring with you a couple of jars maybe of pesto maybe of whatever and suddenly have this experience where you have to take a moment to put something together and it tastes a particular way because of the things you put into it and uh, mm -hmm. and you can get a lot of joy from that and someone who's happy and joyful and positive can race further longer harder push themselves it's it's funny that in the end the the tenacity might be based on something as 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 small as a good meal as a warm meal as a as a tasty meal i think everyone can understand that from from their perspective now where we all have something in common with understanding a bit about isolation and having the distraction yes. and the satisfaction of cooking a good meal it'll it'll change your day yes absolutely absolutely and i think um also uh it's important to note that gender roles should be changing if they're not already changing that that uh, unfortunately in the 20th century and before was like uh, women were making meals and they did that thing and it was kind of like like that was some rudimentary lesser thing that was going on that is absolutely key to what's happening every day those 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 simple things of a meal and people coming together and uh and, and the nutritional value of the meal the atmosphere and the ambience around that meal is key to a lot of human culture and, and is to be savored and if you end up in a situation offshore with people or in any kind of remote situation i'm sure you've experienced it in the bush and the places you've been um 
you know, you might not be much of a geologist, I might not be much of a sailor, but if you can whack together a, a meal that satisfies people, suddenly you become the, the hero. And there's this huge value in that, and it should be, shouldn't be underestimated. I hope that lots of people who are trapped in uh, uh, isolated situations now are learning this, that um, these, like, housekeeping roles are actually hugely important for us. And food in every situation is kind of this, this big positive thing it's totally right in, in, in geology if you're in a small camp and the food's bad everyone's in a piss poor mood yeah but if yeah. everyone yeah. puts in the time and effort to make good food for each other it completely changes mm. you know mm. what's yeah, the word it's true. Right? It's the way a, everybody feels totally totally it's uh yet i see people who come from normal lives normal backgrounds who go onto the even like onto our boats um, at the very beginning, they were like um, stipulating that the food had to be as simple as possible and like a, a very small part of what was going on. And because I was new to the charter business, I kind of allowed that to happen. And I realized like, hang on, I know better than this. Like we've got to make this into something. Um, and, and I know when I did the, the, the clipper thing, what I, the basic kind of outline of the day was um, one person would be what we called mother, who they would be cooking the breakfast and the lunch and the dinner, and they would be able to sleep the whole night, and then the next morning somebody else takes over. So it was an opportunity to step out of your normal sailing duties and, um, and take over this very important role. Sometimes it was seen as being a bit of a short straw, uh, certainly not on our boat. We had a fantastic um, vittler called um, Donna Atkinson, and uh, and she really had got it wired. She bought all the stuff. She um, uh, got the instructions for how everything should be made. So there was there was you couldn't be messed up. But the only person that could possibly mess it up was middle aged man. Like middle aged man is like the, the the downfall of humanity in many ways, and I, I count myself amongst middle aged man's ranks. But yeah. they they're just like they're so so quick to like run towards mediocrity you know in in the kitchen it's um they would they would uh inevitably like take over like they knew what was happening and uh, even though they'd never done anything like this before like cooking for 20 people they oh absolutely i completely know what's going on here so i'd go in and say are you happy with the instructions are you happy with the ingredients yes yes absolutely fine it's completely simple i run a huge company with thousands of employees i can definitely do this and i would say to them you follow the instructions Famous last you put words. only the ingredients in that's in there and because that's what we want to eat because the problem is you can end up with brown food brown food is like you could have lamb changin on the tube Tuesday and bolognese on the Wednesday and uh, you know uh, uh, chili con carne on the Thursday and if the, the if it's not made correctly it's just brown food um, so if they were left untended they would tend to air towards trying to be um, creative which of course should be crushed in middle-aged man because when middle-aged man attempts to be creative what they do is range around the kitchen looking for inspiration which normally involves Leon Perrins and uh, and whatever herbs are at the front of the spice cupboard and then huge amounts of salt and pepper which then takes away any flavor of anything so uh i i would say hey look you know i'm here as a resource if you want me obviously donna can help you with what's going on and if they took the advice then we'd end up with some kind of decent um decent dish at the end of it but if they didn't take the advice the the uh, acid test with that i would get the first uh, bowl of food and uh, i would <laughs> people would be sitting around the table like ready for food i would get the bowl <laughs> and then what they were hoping was happen with that i would eat a mouthful of it and then go to the nav station which means it's gonna be okay everything's all right <laughs> but sometimes i would eat a mouthful of this thing and then put the plate down and donna would look at me and she would know the look and she would bring from some 
some secret cabinet uh, uh, a tin of rice pudding, which then I would then open, staring into the empty pit of the, the previous cook. And uh, then I would sit in the nav station eating rice pudding and everybody knew it was going to be a bad evening. But they, you know, they hadn't put the effort in, they hadn't put the dedication in and they were just serving like brown slop and that's that's not groovy. So very quickly they realized you've got to put some um, some some attention into this. And we had the most fantastic time with food. You're right, It's if you don't realize how important that is, um, yeah, you can end up pretty miserable, like long term. This is where walking the plank became standard procedure during the Clipper race <laughs> after every meal. <laughs> if somebody <laughs> messed it up, the boat got a little lighter. Like that was it. Well, when I did the training, they called me the Terminator because so many people didn't continue with their their thing because I was very clear with them about I'm not mean at all. You know, you sell with me, but it was like this is how it's going to be. Like if if you can enjoy this and you want to do this, that's great. But yeah. if you're kind of like on a bit of a whim and a dream going into this um you know maybe wait a couple years and do it the next time but um no i'm all for as many people as possible getting out there at sea but it's there is a good way of doing things and there's a bad way of doing things there's a great way of running a camp in the jungle with a load of uh people who are working hard each day and there's a bad way of doing it i'm sure you've experienced both and it's the same oh, yeah. uh, on, on a boat at sea it's, it's it's so similar to sailing in a way where it comes yeah. down to budget experience expertise yeah. and I think having done it the wrong way enough times, I've completely <laughs> blown it so many times. Yeah, yeah, me too, me too. And each one of those, you're like, okay, okay, we learned a little bit, let's go the next time. And <laughs> I think it's and then that well one time, me. that one time you realize that actually you can open the fruit salad and you pick out all the mango. And if you pick out all the cashews from the trail mix, you can make a mango and cashew curry, which is gonna blow people's minds. <laughs> and then people are like, he's a god. <laughs> <laughs> oh think, yeah! Oh, thank God I didn't mess it up last time. The the one thing from both those sides that have gotten me pretty comfortable is the ability to screw up. Huge. Yes, <laughs> and that be okay. That's yeah. the most important thing, right? Yeah. Okay. We all survived, right? We're a little hungry. Let's let's, let's figure this yeah. out. Yeah. But but in, in wider things as well in life, there's, I certainly find that in uh, in North American culture um, with the sailing, it's it's you win or nothing. It's like you know it's first, second, third, or, or like nothing. It's it's you, you can't have anything else. And I I love the French attitude to sailing. And obviously, if you get involved in the the, the mini transit, it's dominated by the French. They have a wonderful attitude to sailing. Where uh, if you're a, a young family going out on your first boat and it's twenty foot and you're you're going out for the afternoon, that has the same value in many ways. Ways, certainly in the literature in in in, in Voile Valier and, and other um, French uh, publications they they recognize the the challenge that you're taking on the frontier you're crossing and they'll put that in the magazine with the same amount of real estate as as someone who's sailing around the world they see it all as being equal and I and I love that about the attitude there I hate this thing of that it's um all or nothing I think it's the the death of offshore sailing because each boat, each sailor has a story and, a, and, a, and challenges they've overcome. And oftentimes the biggest challenges and the biggest um, success stories are at the back of the fleet. Sometimes those with huge budgets, the arms race we talked about are at the front um, and their story's a little dry. You know, I, I love the story of, like in the, in the Vendee right now, Pip Hare at the back, like replacing a rudder at sea. Like these uh, are huge things that these that's, individuals that's have overcome. right there. Yeah. She's been my favorite yeah. person to follow the whole time. Yeah, me she's too. she's me too. so charming and her story is incredible. Yes, yes. I, I must admit, going into it, if I'm, I'm absolutely honest, I felt um, a little bit uh, standoffish about it because I was jealous, like 
jealous like hell that she'd managed to stitch it all together and got out there and was doing her thing. I was a bit short on the on the on the the sponsorship, but she won me over with uh, with the the stuff that she's been sending back and the honesty that she's been showing to what it is. Um, and then of of course the. Uh, the, 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 the rudder replacement but soon after that you know she had a bit of a, a difficult tactical situation and she was up front about it and said like I kind of messed it up and uh, now I got to pay the pay the price and um, that's what we want to see we don't want to see lots of prima donnas in, in in white sunglasses who are getting paid hundreds of thousands of euros to be out there um, it, it's just not interesting we want to we want to get into the nitty-gritty of it but the but the positive nitty-gritty not the uh, not what you went through on that TV series <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's, that's that's a totally different world. Uh, I, we, we definitely need to de-Americanize um, what sailing is. It's not some hoity-toity country club thing that's just for rich kids and no. billionaire companies. It's no. about people going out there and pushing their own boundaries in their own ways. And that could be the, the yes. class mini, which is an affordable thing to do. Or yes. it, you know, the Vendée Globe, which you have incredible stories like Pip, like just making it happen and getting out there and yeah. then winning over the world with who she is and how yeah. hard she works. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think um, I think uh, some of the stories that have come out of it have been very exciting at the time. Like, look at the technology in this thing. Look how fast we're going. Look at it's 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 very exciting. It's very thrilling to be kind of involved in that. But it's got a very short shelf life. What yeah. has got more uh, intrinsic value and more um kind of kind of uh meaning for, for for spectators is when it's the human story of it and that's what offshore sailing is brilliant at and i think that with technology developing the way it is um we we can now be on board and we can we can get involved in the story and we can follow people that we're we're attracted to and we can uh, we can see what it's about and be inspired by that and it's watching it and watching the human story and seeing these things it makes them accessible because all of a sudden you can go from a guy on a couch which is mm. me most days on that couch where i'm pointing that you can't see over there <laughs> yeah. staring at the computer going oh man how do i get back out there what's the next step and these yeah. human stories they make it accessible and you're going oh wow yes. okay this person can do it i can do this let's yeah. start researching yeah. talking finding out and then you're engaging with people who aren't million dollar athletes and billion dollar companies mm. you're engaging with humans who, who struggle yeah. and have ups and downs and they're so happy to share that and it's like that is sailing it's a community <laughs> sailing is always hamstrung by the fact that um the the item which kind of makes it happen which is the boat is is expensive there are, but there are ways of getting involved there's ways of connecting with a small community of people and buying a boat together there's clubs that have boats for rent there's um finding that uh, bring a trailer type boat where you know just it's it's there and you start to put it back together and if you reach out into the sailing community through facebook pages through whatever through this kind of podcast there's lots of information and i think you said earlier on there's there's plenty of sailors who are very very happy to share their information and and not be too napoleonic about it i do find in some industries people don't want to share info because you might then use that to overtake that person and kind of get ahead but I, I don't find that so much in sailing everyone's very happy to lend a hand and, and, and be reasonable and be happy and and lend gear and um, it makes it a marvelous community to be to be learning in well, that's what set you aside from so many other people where I started the way so many folks did with how do I get on a fast boat and then you wanted to share that passion and share what you do and what you love, where a lot of people on fast boats just kind of, they brush you away. Like, oh, you didn't go to the Olympics? Ah, no, you're not coming on my yeah. boat. And it's, you know, 
I kind of implore it, like anybody who's listening to this to just like send us a message. Like, all right. Oh yeah, we're real people. Yeah, I put my trousers on one leg at a time. It's uh, yeah. There, there's there's nothing exceptional about really anything I've done. Anything I've done is based on um, employing exactly what we've talked about. Falling apart is a tactic I use to get things done. Uh, trying is a tactic I use to get things done. Messing <laughs> up is a tactic I use to get things done. And then in the end, through all of that and some good meals, uh, so, something comes out the other side. Um, a little bit of self-belief sometimes is difficult to muster, but if you start with small things, it, it builds and it grows. And, um, and it's wonderful to, to bring other people in and to, to, to share it with them and to see them learn and then take it in new directions and, and be better than you and be faster than you and be more knowledgeable than you. That's uh, Daniel, who we both know. Like um, I'm sure he's set to be something in the very near future. His, uh, his skill set is exceptional. His attitude is exceptional. Um, and if, uh, if I am in some way, some small part of him getting there, that is only exciting to me. I think uh, the, the impression perhaps is that um, uh, people at their head want to kind of push you back and, and stand on your shoulders while they get ahead. I, I, I hope that is something that dies off very quickly in sailing. Um, it's, it's, it, it shouldn't be like that. I, I hope it's not like that. Oh, Daniel, if that guy knows so much and is so passionate, He's like the most amazing boat nerd. He, he loves <laughs> everything technical about boats. And he's such a wonder to be around because you're just yeah. learning from him and watching him and like, how do I move that fast and fix things that quickly? But, it, but his, um, his and if, if anybody doesn't know, we're talking about a guy called Daniel Dagenet Gore. He's, uh, he's from Nova Scotia. He, uh, he sailed with Spartan for a little while. He sailed in, in Newport and did a lot of stuff there racing. Um, I, now, I believe it was the eight meters that he was on, but I'm sure I got the wrong length of boat. But I, 12 uh, meters? He then, 12? No, I think it was a... Oh, I don't know. I'm in know. trouble now. <laughs> the, <laughs> <laughs> uh, like boaty boats I think maybe 12 meters maybe you're right I don't know he'll tell me soon enough um, but then he's now driving uh, the um, Volvo 65 sailing Poland uh, on behalf of that team um, and uh, he has focused himself on developing what are really quite ancient skills one of his greatest interests is rope work and tool ship rigging that's kind of where he started but he's found a way to take that and employ it in a new uh, style on new boats and um, and has brought with it maybe a more traditional way of being a seafarer he takes it very seriously he gets the job done and and as we both experienced like uh, when you explain something to him and then he says copy you just go and put the tea on like it's it's going to get done you don't have to worry about it so that's that's not some specific skill set that's a, a choice he's made about the way that he he interacts with the world and the way he does his job and everyone's capable of that of course it's uh he's i think on his business cards it literally says um uh say uh excellence in seamanship um and that's what he's trying to find he's trying to develop excellence in his own seamanship so um yeah he's he's uh if anybody's looking to move up in offshore racing, it just a great attitude is a great place to start, right? Yeah, keep keep at it. The one, yeah. just the one bit of uh, tall ship rigging that I've learned from you, and I carry it everywhere, is the Flemish coil and what it's for and what it's not for. And I walk around <laughs> super yacht clubs being like, "Why'd you coil your rope like that, you bum?" <laughs> and, then, and then these super yacht captains just like look at you and grumble and walk away. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you know, I, I, I guess I'm even softening a little bit in the end. It's like, okay, well, you know, sure, it looks neat. And, it looks nice. Eh, okay, do your thing. But, um, 
<clears throat> it's nice to be a kind of like uh, undercurrent rebellious thing of like, do you know what that's actually for? Because yeah. that's the great thing in sailing. It's like they say, there's this huge heritage and this huge history of things. And uh, the thing I love about uh, sailing, offshore sailing, is that there's a particular way to do things. And um, but there's a beautiful, there's a beauty in the simplicity of like that exact knot in that exact place in that exact way makes this job easy. And that comes hard won through literally thousands of years of human history and there's not many other things you can go out today oh maybe writing maybe walking uh what else <laughs> being in a relationship there's, there's there's some things a bit more esoteric but if you're talking about hands-on skills woodworking of course would be like that um where it's uh, there's a there's a right way to do things and a wrong way to do things and um through trial and error and your own perseverance you can find it and if you get a good mentor you can find it and uh, and still excel in it in it today as, as as daniel's showing us oh it's 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 a whole world and like oh. any day spent on a boat with you is just a day of rope porn it's just oh, well <laughs> you're very kind but it's uh, a yeah. it's it's great a great crew the great um trifecta as you've learned on that boat is uh, if you can get a great boat and a great crew and a, either a great captain or a great owners depending on what the environment is but if you can get that trifecta of things uh, somebody yeah. in charge who's who's good enough and, and 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 a crew that's excellent and a boat that's excellent it's just a, a joy to be out there isn't it oh it's fantastic yeah you, you have a, de a decent amount of money to keep the boat afloat a captain who isn't a complete ass, and then a crew who works together, and you know people will stay on that boat forever. Yeah, exactly. Well, we have we have broached the three-hour barrier here, my friend. Jesus! Oh, I got a job to be at. <laughs> you should probably get along to that. <laughs> I have a Nova Scotian evening to walk into here, and you have a Fijian morning to walk into. Yeah, I gotta go run a mining company for the day. Well, planning okay, my. You're going. Well, planning my flights to get out of here. Dun, dun, dun. Okay, you, you do that. I'll do this. And then we'll meet back up within a certain amount of time uh, in some far-flung port in hopefully Portugal. And we can uh, set sail once more. Oh, I'm already looking at flights. I'm trying to figure out how we can sneak through that border as professional crew. There's... You, yeah, I'll put you in contact with Ryan because he's looking at it from the purely embassy position. Um, yeah. From the super yacht crew, uh, I think you guys could work together. And um, as long as it's legal, it's transparent, and it's uh, possible, let's, let's make it happen. Other oh, than that, it's going to yeah. be swimming ashore at night, which I'm not sure how they'll feel about that. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you're up for it. I'm sure if there's a security service with flashlights chasing you, you'd be up for it. Yeah, if there's, if there's a producer somewhere, I'll, I'll swim a long way to get away <laughs> or to something. No worries. That's awesome, man. Thank you so much for coming on and, and sharing all your experiences and, uh, and what's going on for you. It's, it's been a joy to talk to you. Oh, Chris, this has been fantastic. So there he is, Rob Phillips, otherwise known as Gorgeous Rob, back off to his exciting life in the jungles of Fiji. If you want to catch Rob and see what it's all about uh, with the show, Below Decks, that's available now. I think it's on Crave TV. I've seen it on Roku and other places that you normally find your reality TV viewing. Uh, meanwhile, here on the Mariner, if you want to go over to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner, there's an opportunity there to get involved a little bit more, throw a couple of coins in the jar, and that's really all it needs to be. But if you have a dig through there, you'll find there's some exciting opportunities to get out on the water with Spartan, with myself and Rob in the coming year and experience this all for yourself. That's all for this episode. Until the next one, cheers.